Have you ever wanted to start your own podcast? Well, Anchor FM might be just what you need to do so. It's a free podcast distribution platform with creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer if you wish to do so. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more other platforms. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. And it's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started right now. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to episode 45 of the Salvaggio and Craddy Sports Podcast. We're back here on a Monday again. Not sure how often we're going to be doing Sundays and or Mondays, but it seems like we're going to be interchanging here and there. But regardless, we're back. We're here. The Bruins have knocked out the Washington Capitals from the playoffs. That feels wonderful. Uh, We were both wrong in our seven game predictions, and we are happy to say we are wrong. Are we, Ryan? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if there were people that were wondering why we decided to go with a Monday instead of a Sunday show, I mean, that that's your answer right there. We thought it'd be better to come back on a, a positive Monday because uh, I think you and I, after game four, pretty convinced, maybe me less so because I thought they, you know, officials were going to have a little bit more to do with this game and maybe push it to a game six for Washington, but they didn't. Bruins overcame adversity and uh, they moved on, becoming the second team to move on to the NHL Stanley Cup playoffs uh, after Colorado swept St. Louis. Haha, <laughs> St. Louis, you bums. Um, yeah, so that's the reason why we're doing this on a Monday instead of a Sunday. Of course, uh, this that obviously pushes the show back and gives us more Patriots and Celtics and some Red Sox stuff to talk about too, but it is mainly Bruins, of course, because they are the talk of the town right now. As Certainly. For jersey numbers, it is not the most star-studded yeah, week. It's a, it's a weak week. To Pedro Martinez for episode 45, fantastic. But then it kind of drops off. Yeah, kind of drops off. off. Yeah, not even kind of, definitely. Um, the cast includes Dan Vitale, who is a fullback that hasn't played a game for the Patriots yet. He had to see uh, the Patriots uniform. He had opted out last year after coming to the Patriots from the Packers as a free agent. Uh, Romeo Langford. Yeah. Joe Morrow, if you're looking for an old Bruin. Uh, yeah, not great. Uh, Mark Stewart, not a bad old Bruin. Good, solid depth defenseman from time to time. Robert Lang, for any old-time hockey fans. Uh, Robert Lang was a pretty damn good player. Did wear 45 for the Bruins while he was here. But, um, um, yeah, I mean... Not a great week in terms of um, the jersey numbers. Usually we have more exciting players to talk about. Next week we'll have a few more exciting players to talk about, one in particular. I'm sure Bruins fans can guess. But, mm-hmm. um, yeah, Bruins, like you said earlier, talk of the town right now after knocking out the Capitals in five games. Like we said, we're both happy to be wrong. We both had the Bruins in seven. Glad it didn't take that long. Uh, personally, it just would have been more stressful, more stress than we need in our lives. And, um we talked about it last week. Things weren't looking too great at the start with that overtime loss in game one, but the Bruins uh, quickly fl- flipped the script. Not the prettiest fashion in game two, but they got it done with an overtime win in the form of Brad Marchand breaking a Bruins record, scoring the quickest playoff overtime goal in franchise history, beating out the iconic uh, Bobby Orr goal back in the day over the San Luis Blues, the diving celebration. Um yeah, exactly that. Wasn't the prettiest one, but um, a nice muck in front of the net from Taylor Hall late in the third period to bury one, um, plus a Brad Marchand overtime winner off the stick uh, from the stick of David Krejci to Matt Grizzlick to Brad Marchand uh, seals the deal and reinstills hope for the Bruins for sure. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't, there were some people talking, you know, if game two is a must win game for the Bruins, I don't know if you could say that that early in the series, but obviously you want to go back home with a series split. You don't want to go down two games to none, which would have stunk. And I mean, you see it again. I had it in the outline, you know, Taylor Hall, the, AKA the greatest trade deadline addition in any sport ever, uh, because he played out of his mind, of course, in this first round series, I thought it was arguably their best player. You could maybe make the case for Charlie. Not maybe you could definitely make the case for Charlie McAvoy. I had a discussion with a buddy of mine yesterday at work about that. Um, but yeah, I mean, you see it again. Taylor Hall steps up when, you know, the lights shine brightest. And then you mentioned it, Brad Marchand, he's the king of OT winners. Um, just doing what he had to do. I mean, we talked about it after the first game. We didn't think the first line, including Marchand, played all that well. We probably thought they were arguably the worst line in that first game against Washington. And they stepped up definitely in overtime and had pretty much a solid game all around in that first game or that second game rather. Yeah, it was huge. Our biggest thing um, towards the end of Bruins talk last week was, you know, getting one on the road and Mm -hmm. reinstilling confidence, you know, giving you something to build off of uh, for game three and beyond. And yeah, they did that. Winning four games in a row against any team is a big feat, but uh, doing it against the Washington Capitals with so much potential they have on offense and even uh, on defense, if you want to include uh, John Carlson, to do that against Washington was just massive. And this was the start of it. Uh, this, the celebration was awesome. Uh, Marshawn jumping onto the dasher into Taylor Hall's arms and Hall with the funny comment after, um, after the game about he's, how he's been working out and, you know, pretty strong guy. It's pretty funny. Not, you know, Marshawn's not the heaviest guy to have to um, take the brunt of a celly from um, on the dasher, but that was pretty funny. Funny how Marshawn would just fire it up and his first instinct was just jump into the bench essentially, which is pretty funny. And uh, yeah, they get it done. It uh, wasn't the prettiest, like we said, you know, any game where you're, you're letting up two goals to Garnet Hathaway isn't the best, but um, they got it done. It's just what clutch players do. Even Taylor Hall, you know, a guy that came came to Boston saying he's not the most confident player in the world right now and uh, quickly turned that around. He spelled that, yeah, and, absolutely. And all the way to now, I mean, he's just – the thing with Taylor Hall too is he's not just skilled. He has just that effortless speed. It doesn't – it doesn't take him long to get fully going. Like it looks just very effortless to him. He's, you could just tell the guy, the guy lives for leg day and just <laughs> like the, the quick acceleration, how easy it is for him to get a top speed is just phenomenal. Um, it's incredible to watch. And yeah, this is the start of, you know, the big turnaround for the Bruins after a tough game one and um, other goal scorers. in this one besides Hall and Bergeron with Jake DeBrusque was a pretty weird goal to start the game, like right mm-hmm. off the face off. Um, really like if you blinked, you w- would have missed it. I missed it originally because, you know, I looked away from the TV for like a second and, um, I missed it and obviously saw the replay, but nice one for DeBrusque. Um, good to have playoff DeBrusque back. He had three points in the series overall, you know, he had moments where, you know, you see that type of DeBrusque that people were complaining about, uh, during the season too much of the, you know, lack of effort kind of, you know, poke and go type of stuff, but overall, um, I think DeBrusque had a good, like, t- sort of bounce back series and uh, kept it going with goals in as many games, this being the second one. And uh, Bergeron scored the other Bruins goal in that one. And it was time to go back to Boston for game three. And game three was uh, was a pretty, pretty exciting one at the end, I'd say. Oh, I thought you were going to say stressful. Oh, yeah. Well, that too. <laughs> That's the adjective I would have used for it, especially that third period, because, I mean, let's be honest, I don't know if the Bruins really deserve to get into that first overtime after how they kind of finished out the game. 
don't know if you feel the same way as I do, but I mean, that third period was one of the more uglier periods I've seen the Bruins play in a while. Granted, it worked out. They ended up winning the game, obviously, so that's good, but that was a, a shaky one, to say the least. Yeah. Good thing you got a goalie that doesn't suck, huh? Yeah, sure. Sure thing. You got a goalie that was uh, the most important yeah. player on the team. And they should have benched him after game one, though, right? Yeah, I should have benched yeah. him. Yeah. Terrible, it's, terrible it's guy. Swayman. Love Jeremy Swayman, but hashtag, thought Jeremy Swayman. Swayman. Yeah, if you, if you thought Jeremy Swayman should have started, like, I'm sorry, you're just wrong. You don't do that when you have two Karask. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, Ovechkin got the scoring started in this one. It's cool as first period, but any time Ovechkin gets scoring started, um, you have to be a little nervous. But uh, it didn't matter all that much because – you know, Taylor Hall just did something completely absurd in this game. And not only that, Craig Smith did as well. Just a great behind-the-back pass. And Taylor Hall just scores an absurd superstar goal. Just if you – I saw this one angle from NHL Gifts on Twitter probably like 30 minutes after the goal where you're looking at it from a perspective from like Tuca's side of the ice, mm-hmm. uh, but obviously closer because you wouldn't want to look at it from that far away. You wouldn't see much. But – it's crazy to look at it from that angle because this sort of spinorama move, if you will, kind of, I don't know what the exact term you'd put for this is, but it's sort of like a spin type move. Um, mm-hmm. From this angle that I'm referring to, like there was nothing for Hall. Like it looked like he had nothing. And if you look at it from a side angle too, he really didn't have much either. He had such a tight window um, to deposit the puck into the net. And he did. And it just, for this to, happen like how can you not scream at the top of your lungs like this is the one moment the whole series like me and my dad both jumped at the same time and Mm -hmm. totally screamed at the top of our lungs it's just a superstar's goal it's a super yeah i was just gonna say it's a goal scorer's goal for sure like and just off your point too about hulk from a couple seconds ago like that this is the type of goal that i obviously you knew you were getting with taylor hall or the type of ability you were getting with taylor hall i had no idea to go off of your point of how good of a skater he was just how many times you could count on two hands or more how many times he just blew by guys in the offensive zone that was it's kind of been the biggest surprise to me like i know you just said that he's a phenomenal skater and can move well with the puck but like i figured that he was more so this type of you know phenomenal goal scoring and you know, finesse and touch and all that stuff. Like I said, just the ability to skate by guys, which he did numerous times in this series, which was, was kind of the surprising thing for me. Yeah, he, it's just that effortless speed, man. Mm-hmm. Super, some superstar players in this league have it, and Taylor Hall is fully back in that form. Uh, it's just, it's just a treat to watch him. It just looks so seamless to him. Um, then in the third period, Graham Marchand deflects it past uh, Samsonov. Just beautiful, just beautiful. I mean, you needed you needed one down a goal. Uh, you get one from Brad Marchand. Got love scoring clutch goals, deflection on the power play. Um, obviously, ends up being massive because it ends up being the final goal of regulation. You head to overtime, um, give yourself a chance to catch a breather, and ideally, and they did avoid a late goal from Washington to spoil it. Uh, you get that time to rest into overtime, and you ended up needing two overtimes, but. Uh, Craig Smith is the hero in this one in what I'd call the turning point of the series. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think you could make the case Washington kind of seemed deflated after that. I mean, they showed the on the broadcast Ovechkin screaming it either. I don't know which defenseman it was back there, but a lot of people saw it was more so towards Samsonov, and then they feel like they never really bounced back after that. 
Yeah, and it, that was indicative of their game four performance too, where they just absolutely pretty flat. Dead. Yeah, they looked pretty flat. It was definitely their most flat game of the series. Um, albeit they did lose in game five. Uh, they just looked more flat in game four. They just looked pretty demoralized. And uh, if in fact he was yelling at Samsonov, I mean that's just like the worst person for a young Russian goaltender to be yelled at by yeah. like one of the best Absolutely. Russian athletes ever. One of the best hockey players ever just screaming at you. Like, how does that not just crush your confidence? It's, it's just, I don't see an opportunity where it, or a, a scenario where it doesn't. <laughs> no, just... I don't see any positive out of that scenario. Like maybe you can make the case that Ovech can maybe try to light a fire under Samsonov's ass. Yeah, I mean, kind of chewing him out, but yeah, I'm with you. Like, that's that's the wrong guy to be getting yelled at by. I mean, I don't think Ovechkin did anything great in this series either. He had what two goals, so it's not like I mean, he's obviously the captain, so he's gonna have the ability to say things. But like, I he didn't put on that great of a performance in the series. I thought. I mean, they shut him down definitely last night. I didn't think you know you really saw any or heard anything really about Ovechkin at all. He did have a goal in Game Four, but like they pretty much knocked him out of this series. I feel like. Yeah, overall, I was expecting more from Ovechkin. You know, he did have four points, so it's not like he was completely non-existent. Uh, mm-hmm. But there were pretty decent stretches of play where, you know, scoring opportunities were being neutralized for guys like him and Carlson. Uh, mm-hmm. For me, a lot, too, I saw a lot of opportunities where John Carlson would try to tee one up uh, through traffic or just beat Tuka top corner or something, and it would get deflected, bounce off of somebody, hit the or uh, hit the sideboards, whatever. Uh, they did a really good job of limiting high danger scoring chances uh, for Ovechkin and Carlson in particular, and that's just massive. Uh, Carlson being one of the best offensive defensemen in the league, and Ovechkin arguably the best goal scorer of all time, um, it's just massive. And yeah, this this miscommunication by Justin Schultz and Ilya Samsonov, maybe it was Schultz getting some of the uh, some of the shouting from Ovechkin as well. Just the turning point, Craig. Craig Smith capitalizes. Uh, the hungrier dog gets there faster and buries it. He had a tight window to put that in on the wraparound. He buried it. Superman celebration. Uh, I put out the, I threw his face on Superman on the little Snapchat <laughs> Photoshop thing. Super Smith. They're calling him super Smitty as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, just massive. The turning point um, of the series. It just, to me, it just felt like it was over. It just, yeah fully felt like it was over this game was this series was over in five mm-hmm. uh, from there on out in the back of my head and that's a beautiful thing like we alluded to earlier it's better that um it took five versus six or seven get it done as quickly as possible uh but before then you know it wasn't outright over in game three it felt like it was over but they still had two more games to win and they got those wins uh starting with game four like we alluded to earlier definitely the flattest game uh, for Washington and, you know, has to be partially because of what happened at the end of game three. Uh, Brad Marchand gets the goal scoring started. Pasternak uh, subject to some criticism, including from myself and my dad watching the games. There's too much in game three. The thing with Pasternak for me was the game that uh, stuck out the most. He was trying to, he was trying to put himself in positions to just not get hit a lot. I thought, mm-hmm. I think, he does that from time to time, you know, that's comes in part with being a 
player that relies on finesse a lot and his hands. And it was frustrating because, you know, our, obviously it led up to a game that needed two overtimes to win. Uh, when your top player is playing like that in a style to a lot, I assume a lot of people outside of me and my dad, uh, when you're getting that from a top player, it's just extra frustrating. And um, game four was really the the game where he really broke through. And uh, what a time for it. What a time for it. You know, you really wanted that that oomph to <laughs> the game three win. You know, you win kind of off a fluky goal, if you will. Um, obviously, you know, we love the effort from Craig Smith. But uh, partially, you know, they got a bit lucky there. And they yeah, took advantage right. of it. You know, to to prove that that game wasn't a fluke, um, having a better effort from David Pasternak uh, was going to be important. You got it 29 seconds into the period. How's that for a way to do it in the third? Yeah, absolutely. I'm right there with you and your dad. I mind my, my myself and my dad thought the same thing. I mean, he first two and a half games because I thought you know he really kind of started to look like David Pasternak in the first overtime of that third game. Um, but, I mean, he was pretty non-existent the first two games, which, like you said, we talked about. and was frustrating to sit there and watch because you know you have a guy that has all this talent and then kind of fell into the trap, I feel like, of the same thing we've said a lot about this Bruins team in the playoffs and this first line specifically is trying to do too much, you know, trying to make the extra pass. And I feel like Pasternak did that a lot, had some pretty lackluster bad turnovers in a couple of these games early on. But, yeah, I mean, I'm right with you. Game four started to look like, the regular old David Pasternak that we're used to seeing. Of course, he really broke out, obviously, last night, which we'll get to in a little bit. But, yeah, I mean, game four was a good turning point and kind of a good moment for Pasternak to kind of get back onto his game, it seemed like. Yeah, and a big thing, too, and this is another thing I was talking to my dad about, and he made a good point, and they made a point about it on the broadcast last night as well, is that they switched up Pasternak's positioning on the power play. Mm-hmm. which I did not expect to see because no, I would have never you're, thought that you just used to posh knock in that trademark spot. But even for a lot of the later portion of the regular season, he wasn't getting those same looks at a consistent um, ticker as he was, you know, in the past where, especially in the season two seasons ago, where he tied Ovechkin uh, for the league leading goals. You, know, you saw posh scoring tons of goals from that, um, that spot, much like Ovechkin's, um, on the power play in particular, but for this season overall, it wasn't working as well. And they decided to go with the, go with them on the right side and this game and it worked. They, you know, it has to be part of, I hate to say this, but part of what they know about Chara too. Chara's yeah. on that, Chara's on that side of the ice where they had to redeployed Pasternak and it ended up working. You know, a guy that's a little bit slower to the, slower to the chase to get to pucks and that gave Pasternak an advantage and uh, yeah, quick advantage because he scored literally 29 seconds into the period. Um, how's that for uh, scoring a quick goal and getting the confidence back? You know, you could say that Pasternak struggled for portions of this uh, series too, but when it all comes down to it, he did lead the team in points. So overall, you can't complain too much. But um, mm-hmm. that game three in particular is too much of the uh, too much passiveness from Pasternak, and I'm glad. Um, I'm sure. Bruins fans are too that he kind of he kind of strayed away from that and looked like his old self more so again uh Charlie Coyle followed up a little bit later with one of his own uh good to see Coyle get on the board it's been a tough season for him as a whole but a uh, nice goal for him nice timely goal for him 
Um, Ovechkin played spoiler a little bit later on, but it ended up mattering. Matt Grizzly added one more late in the game. Matt Grizzly and Charlie McAvoy, elite defensive pairing. Don't forget it. Um, Charlie McAvoy, three assists in this game, his best game of the series. Um, outside of, you know, you can make the case that the two, uh, game three was as well because he just played so much and played well, really, really well. And I see Grizzly get rewarded on the power play here for the dagger it ended up being. And just an emphatic four to one win. We were so used to close games between the Bruins and the Capitals. And to see a four one win in such a massive game four, we really had a, an, uh, an opportunity to take a stranglehold in this series. It's just a massive time for it. And it set the tone for game five. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there were some kind of unfortunate things that I'm sure you, you were going to get to in this one. Obviously, the, the Kevin Miller game where he goes out with the injury and we've talked about this a lot with the Bruins over the years uh, for as long as we've done this, you know, they've they've always been a team that kind of stands up for one another and kind of, if they have moments like this, they kind of bounce back from them and win for guys that get hurt. So obviously you win this game for Kevin Miller, but I thought they even talked about it afterwards. I think it was McAvoy that said it, you know, we wanted to step up for, you know, the things that happened in this game or whatever his comment may have been at the end. Um, But yeah, I mean, it stinks to see a guy like Kevin Miller go down on an incredibly iffy hit Orlov, I don't know if you feel like that was penalized correctly. I know Jack Edwards was not happy about it. He kept bringing it up last night in the game. Um, but yeah, I mean, I thought just a perfect response game. You know, what happens, what goes down, the Bruins score, what was it, the two, the Pasternak and the Coral goal, it seemed like in the blink of an eye after Miller goes out with an injury. Um, but yeah, they're, I feel like their most kind of complete effort as a whole. I don't know if maybe you can make the case for last night being a more complete effort, but I thought this was really the first game in the series for the Bruins, especially that you kind of saw all three assets of the game, you know, offense, defense, and then the goaltending of course was phenomenal again from Rask. Again, he's not a crappy goaltender. Let's not forget that. Um, but yeah, like I said, without a doubt, the Bruins are the best game of the series. Uh, yeah, I'd, game say, game four. I'd say game four was definitely overall the best. Mm-hmm. Um, obviously they got the win last night, but we'll get into why I, you know, I picked game four over, that once we get into our game five deep dive, but um, unintentional rhyme, nice. Um, yeah, the the way the Orlov hit was handled was really bad. He left his mm-hmm. feet, went high on Miller. Um, they just did not do enough to ideally penalize stuff like this harder, maybe with the suspension as well, because um, the NHL just doesn't really understand how to set a standard for this type of stuff, even though you know, they like did, it. they did give Nassim Kadri an eighth game suspension, which he is now appealing. But overall, when you look at, you know, big opportunities for um, hard discipline on players, they more often than not drop the ball. And they did it here. I think a love should have been suspended. Um, now with the series being over so quickly, it didn't end up mattering in terms of the future of the playoffs for them. But I think you could have given him a, you know, multiple game suspension here and set a standard. He didn't even get a fine. Like no. it's, it's I, nonsense. I mean, the Manta to compare it with Manta. I was just going to bring it. Yeah, Manta with Rask. Mm-hmm. He gets five for that, but Orlov doesn't get five K at least for at, or at bare minimum, I should say for going high on a player that has injury history, you know, more so with his knee and his shoulder. Um, but regardless, going high on a player that is still feeling the after effects of that hit, by the way, all these days later, um, and leaves his feet, which is dangerous. Launching into a player is not 
something you want to do if you're trying to make a legal body check. But, you know, Dmitry Orlov clearly doesn't know that because he did not make a legal body check here and the league and the officials dropped the ball. It's just it's just another bad look. It should have been uh, punished more harshly. And, uh, yeah, it's just another another situation where they dropped the ball. Yeah, it didn't make a lot of sense to me. Like you said, you brought up the Mantha point. I, same thing with you. I found it interesting. You know, they find a guy for running the goalie who thankfully didn't get hurt on the play. But then oh, you see, God, the, you see the Orlov play who injures a guy. It has to miss game five and may have to miss more games in the playoffs. We don't know, of course. I think that's kind of a big thing, too, that we'll talk about is obviously the Bruins finishing this up quick so they can get Miller especially and maybe some other guys that we don't know about that may be dealing with some uh, injuries, get them kind of up to speed and get them healthier. But, yeah, I mean, that just – didn't make a lot of sense to me. You have one play where a guy legitimately gets injured on, has to leave the game. And obviously at the time that, it, that they didn't know that he wasn't going to be able to play game five, but nothing comes out of that. And then Rask who gets run and was kind of, it wasn't run all series, but there was some extracurriculars in front of Rask. It seemed like a lot that, you know, obviously you'd like to see the fine there, which is good to kind of cut down on that. But yeah, just the, the decisions to find one guy for one thing and then not do anything to the guy that had the more egregious of the penalty yeah. and the, the hit and everything that happened is it's just kind of head scratching to me, but as we've seen all season and it seems like, especially with the capitals, you know, I made the joke that I don't know if the NHL is like afraid to punish the capitals correctly or not, but they just never seem to get punishments when it comes to them. Right. In any sense whatsoever. It's funny too, thinking back about um, how you mentioned like incidents with Rask and then you have the incident where Rask is, you know, given, Garnet Hathaway a few jabs that was pretty funny to see yeah, kind of that, that Tuka go unhinged a little bit uh anytime I you know see Tuka get pissed off or anything I think of the classic picture where he's Escape holding thing. up a skate blade yeah. but I mentioned this this actually segues into something too where I was like laughing because with in game five the goal like a call back late uh the Eller goal like a call back late Every time I see Tuca get like upset about something, like you know, he got interfered with, he's always so quick to the refs. He's like, "What the hell? What the hell?" Yeah, like he he reacts so quickly every time, and he's usually got good reason for it. Um, with Game Five being one to fall into that category because it ended up not being a goal for Eller, but it's so funny how like when uh, Tuca feels like he's been wronged or like interfered with for a goal, he's so quick. Like you, you can just see him fly over to the he ref. Knows it, yeah. Um, it's just so funny to see how quickly he reacts. Um, I just always get a kick out of it, but yeah, uh, it was a quite a series for incidents involving Tuca. He came out of the series healthy though. That's all that matters. And he came out of the series, the team's best player. Um, and I think that's fairly hard to deny, but the haters might have something else to say. Um, but yeah, man, they got it done. Game four, the emphatic win that they needed um, to take the stranglehold of the series. And as we know now, it did give them the stranglehold in the series because even though they got outshot by quite a bit in game five, um, they got the win. And it's pretty funny because they outshot the Capitals 37 to 20 in game four. And then they almost have an almost identical shot margin just on the flip side. Um from 37 to 20 in game four to 41 to 19 in favor of the Capitals on the flip side in game five. But if you could be one thing, you should be efficient, right, Ryan? That's what I've heard and what I've been told. So, so they tell I me. Will, I will stick with that logic. That's what the Bruins did. They were efficient in, in game five. 
And you might look at a, a team that wins with 19 shots and you're kind of questioning, you know, did they do enough to win? Did they, did they get lucky maybe? I'm not saying people were doing that, but, you know, that's a thing that could happen in a situation like this. But it really wasn't. The Bruins just – it was another game on a different scale, you know, in terms of, you know, generating shots as a result of this is where overall I think they did a good job despite letting out 41 shots <clears throat> of limiting, like, major high-danger scoring Math, chances yeah. yep. for guys like Ovechkin and Carlson and even Nicholas Backstrom. Nicholas Backstrom I was going to say, Backstrom was – had a very quiet series. Yeah, he was non-existent in this series. I don't ever remember really his name being. I think he might have hit the post once, and that was about it. <laughs> like, like Connor, he, Connor Sherry had the higher, highest danger chances in this game, uh, with one of them being the lone goal for them. But um, speaking of high-danger scoring chances for Connor Sherry, Lars Eller sneaks across um, into the slot, finds Connor Sherry, backdoor first period. Um one of the biggest moments of this game where Rask just stones him on the back door. His arguably best save of the game, yeah. Not only stones him, but if you look at the replay on that goal, you know, situations like that, you can see a goalie kind of fly over and make a desperation save. You could mm-hmm. tell Tuca was ready for that. If that happened, if, if Eller tried to go for the shot, he was ready for it, but he was ready for that idea of the backdoor chance. Um, it was just calm and collected, went over, made the big save, um, and things like that really stick out. And it's such an important game where you, you know, you win, but you only win by two goals. You know, it's a potentially different game if um, Sherry ends up burying that one in the first period. But he did it. That stuck out. And what was just a massive effort for Tuka Rask in game five. 40 saves to match the number on his back. His uh, best just game for sure. Casual 40 save win for the elite goaltender known as Tuka Rask. Um, interesting graphic that Nesson put on. Um, before the game was just a graphic of the forward core and, you know, the consistency in point production uh, coming into game five, Marchand had three points. Bergeron had two. Boschnack had four. Hall had three. Krejci had two. Smith had three. Richie had three. Coyle had two. DeBrusque had three. And then the fourth line, uh, they're all listed out by hits. Corrali with 13, Lazar with 13, and Wagner with 19. It's really refreshing to see that. And with a team that has had the plague of secondary scoring inconsistency be a problem for so long to see that consistency up and down the top nine forward group. I was really refreshing, um, a refreshing reminder coming into such an important game. Yeah. I mean, I was going to say that I, I've mentioned already a couple of times, you know, talking about the past and how many times we, <clears throat> excuse me, sat here and talked about just that exactly, you know, Oh, we go into a series of Marshan Bergeron and Pasternak play well, but you know, the opposing team shuts them down. And then what do you have? And it's, David Krejci, and then really nothing else. This, this is the first series I feel like in a while where you mentioned the graphic and it showcases exactly what every line has done. I mean, you said the fourth line, they don't really put up the points, but that's not what they're out there to do. I mean, they kept the game physical, they, you know, high energy chances. I chances I felt like when they were out there flying around, kind of putting the body on guys. So every line seemed to have, you know, their role and did it extremely well, especially the last two games of the series. So yeah, to take your word, it was absolutely refreshing to see, you know, this team finally put together really a full top nine, like you said, even, you know, the bottom three guys kind of come out and play exactly how they were supposed to and do their jobs and finish things off. Yeah, and outside of that with the fourth line too, it's just been it's just, just been really nice to see a, you know, a defense first fourth liner really uh, stable, continue to stabilize um, that fourth line and Curtis Lazar. You can just tell um, – 
even though he's pretty, you know, he's pretty active on the four check more often than not, you can just tell if you watch him closely that he's, you know, he's defense first guy. He's very concerned uh, with cleaning things up and the defense is on first before hand um, as his first priority. And that's nice because yeah, he, it's just continued for that fourth line as well. Um, Corrali and Wagner look really comfortable um, on his wings and overall, you know, I think they did a pretty solid job overall um, in terms of, you know, pushing the pace, you know, given the, giving the team a good fourth line shifter once in a while, um, though the weight around and overall they're pretty solid, but yeah, that, that graphic was really just a nice reminder um, going into what ended up being a pretty good game. They didn't get the secondary scoring in this one, but it didn't end up mattering uh, because mm. they got the win. Mike Riley, this is the game of Mike Riley, low key. I uh, guess primary assess in the first two goals of the game for the Bruins um, on the only two goals that needed primary assist because Bergeron second was forced by him sort of jumping the route, like a cornerback in football uh, mm-hmm. makes the, makes the read uh, walks in and scores Bergeron, the captain steps up in a big way. David Pashnok continues, you know, his resurgence, if you will, after, you know, somewhat of a slow start to the series, you know, some moments here and there that he didn't love from Pashnok. Um, but Bergeron, Mike Riley, Pasternak, uh were the main offensive guys in this game. Pasternak with two points, Riley with two points, Bergeron with two points, pretty consistent across the board. And uh, yeah, you needed that second goal from Bergeron, especially because Connor Sherry and the Capitals came out fast in the third period. Um, I don't know about you, but I really wasn't all that worried after that goal. No, I mean, I fully expected – I mean, we joked about it after game four. I text, I think I texted you saying I'd like Rast to get a shutout just to shut people up in the in game yeah, five to finish it up. So I was kind of hoping that he, as soon as the third period started, I'm like, he's going to get a shutout. He's, what, stopped 20 at 20 in the second period? I'm like, he's he's on his game. You mentioned it, the Sherry stop in the first period, looking as zoned in as maybe we've ever seen Tuka Rask all season. I'm like, he's got this tonight. There's no chance. 11 seconds into the third period, a little... I'm not going to say doubt settled in. Cause I'm like, I think the Bruins will still, they'll put up a goal later. They'll kind of rascal bounce back and stop. So I wouldn't say I was too worried. Um, I didn't like to see a goal 11 seconds in for Washington. Cause you thought it would have given them some life, but I mean, the Bruins seemed to shut that down right away. And then obviously you get the Bergeron goal later on in the period that, that really puts the nail in their coffin. So yeah, I mean, I wouldn't say I was too worried, but obviously, like I said, you don't really want to see that a goal like that happen that quick in the period especially against your top line. But like Brickley said, it seemed to piss them off. And that was good to see. Obviously they came out and after that first shift and played phenomenal in the third period as they did all game. So maybe that kind of lit a fire under their, their asses and helped get that third goal. Yeah. It was kind of like a situation where they like, didn't necessarily need it, but it just gave them a kick in the pants. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, it was just weird. It was just weird. I just, after that game three, from there on out, I was just I was just really confident they were going to get it done in five games. It just felt like Washington was cooked. They were out of the series um, for the most part. And it wasn't even me mainly thinking like, oh, Tuka's just going to shut them down. I just had confidence in the team as a whole. Like I saw that early goal, and, you know, it was a little bit troublesome, but I was like, they're, they're going to win this game. They're still going to win this game. Mm-hmm. I can just feel it. Like there's, there's no way that they just collapse in the third period. I just – it just didn't feel it. It just, I just didn't feel it. And um, I'm glad that ended up being the case because uh, it'd be a much different show if they ended up goofing up in uh, the third period and losing game five, but they did yeah. not. 
Yeah, Bergeron comes off clutch, just a massive game for him. Riley Pasternak, nice to see Riley. Um, the assist machine still does not have a goal all season, but it doesn't matter because he just loves uh, primary assists when they matter the most, and um, that can certainly be said in this one, setting up the first two goals of the game. And uh, that's the series. That is the series. Bruins in five did not see it happening. I tweeted it last night. I really did not see this game over in five for either team. Definitely not the Capitals, but uh, no. not as not even really for the Bruins, too. I thought this was going six at minimum. Uh, the pick was obviously seven. But, man, they really, they really put a statement out to the rest of the league. Uh, this is a Washington team that – they were hungry at the trade deadline, just like the Bruins. Uh, they were supposedly interested in Taylor Hall, uh, but they ended up with Anthony Manta after the fact. Um, bulked up, you know, wanted to make another run. Obviously, with Ovechkin's potential last season as a capital, I really don't see him leaving, but he is a free agent. Uh, that 13-year contract is finally over. Where he signed 13 years, $124 million way back in the day. You wanted to win another cup, ideally, or make another run in Ovechkin's potential last season. I don't think it will be, but the Bruins spoil it. Um, potentially the last game of the illustrious career of Zdeno Chara. Yeah, that'll be interesting to see. I completely forgot that they said on the broadcast that he still has one more year with the Capitals contract-wise, but because I thought he only signed a one-year deal there. But, um, yeah, I mean, that his kind of future, once again, is uncertain. Um We'll have to wait and see what happens with him. Obviously, I, I'm i not in the head of Zidane Chara. I don't know Zidane Chara, so I'm not going to say what his future would be because, like I said, I don't know that. But you got to think after a first-round exit, he would, would want to come back for another year. But obviously, you just at this point don't know what he's thinking and kind of where he's at. Uh, dude, he's a, he's a free agent. Is he? Okay, I don't know why they – that's what I mean. I don't know why they said that last night that I could have sworn Jack said he has – one year left with Washington, no. but like, that's not certain because of Char, Char, Char can make the decision to leave. I'm like, I could have sworn he signed a one year deal. So that's good that that got cleared up. I had the idea thrown out to me last night that, you know, he, uh, retires, signs a one, or As they bring know, him back and air quotes, retires, signs a one day contract with the Bruins or retires a Bruin. I don't mm. know if Char will do that, but it's certainly possible. Um, I'm very hot and cold on this right now. I, I feel like Char doesn't want to go out like this, but no. he has to ask himself, like, is there another run? Like, is, am I gonna, you know, am I going to try and run it back and win another one only to potentially not do so again? Yeah. And not come close. It, it comes yeah. down to passion. It comes down to how exactly, much he wants yeah. to play. Um, ideally, even going into this season, ideally for him, he would have played for the Bruins, but obviously that didn't end up being the case. Um, what does he do now? I don't know, man, but, I can't fully, I can't fully outright say at this point in time that I think Char is done. I just, he's just mm-hmm. got too much. He's just got too much passion for the game. Maybe that passion took a hit a little bit with this type of series and, you know, watching his former team eliminate him and his new team. But I don't know, man, I just can't outright say right now with a guy like Chara that he's just going to call it. I can't do it right now. I can't, but now, like I said, the way he went out, you feel like he's going to want at least one more kick at the can, but. There's He's also the out. possibility if he retires that he joins the Bruins coaching staff. Which yeah, that was obviously a rumor when he was still trying to figure out what his status was in the NHL, if he was going to get signed by somebody else. So I remember hearing that, that there was talks that Bruins could want him as a back as a coach rather than a player. But 
yeah, coaching staff. I could or, definitely see that happening. You know, management some somewhere in yeah. the organization. It's certainly possible that Daniel Char works for the Bruins in the in the future. I mean, he still has a home in Boston. It's not mm-hmm. like he, you know, he signed with the Capitals and moved his whole family out of Boston. Um, he did not do so. So you now we'll see what's up for Char in the future. Um, if it is the end, I mean, we've we've talked about Char so much in this show. Just an insane career. No doubt Hall of Famer, mm-hmm, one of sure. the most unique NHL players of all time. Uh, just the shutdown ability, the size, the leadership, the biggest player to ever play in the NHL. Uh, Stanley Cup champion, Norris Trophy winner. Um, the accolades are just incredible. The success is incredible. The respect he has across the league. Uh, it'll suck to see Chara go out if he goes out like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, calls it a career at some point in the offseason, but... Uh, you know, we'll never forget Zidane Char. That's that's, that's, no, that's for sure. an undoubtable thing. She's done so much for Boston, and if this is it, this is it. It's pretty crazy, man. It feels like our whole lives we've just been with pretty, had yeah, pretty Char much. It. Yeah. <laughs> it's pretty wild to think about that this type of player with uh, this type of magnitude uh, across the league and across sports. Mm-hmm. Uh, if this is it for Zidane Chara, I mean, what a career. What a career yeah. for big man. But uh, ideally, you'd love to see him stick around and, you know, maybe win another cup next year or something, see what happens with him. Mm-hmm. Could have been the last game as a Dan Char. Pretty crazy to think about. Could have been the last game for Alex Ovechkin as Washington yep. Capital. Um, that would be weird to see. Possible. I put up for somebody else next year. I'm with you. I don't think it's going to happen, but that's just a real – would be a really weird thing. Yeah, it, the, it would just be crazy. It would be really, really wild. He's still going to make a substantial amount of money too. Um, so, you know, you're oh, really yeah. going to have to feel comfortable fitting him in, even if it's just for a year, mm-hmm. um, if you're signing Ovi, because, yeah, uh, it's going to be pricey. Yeah. While we're on the Capitals, one question I wanted to ask you, because watching the game last night, it, was, it kind of dawned on me, and I wanted to get your thoughts on it. If Obviously, we knew going into the series, and they talked about it a lot, Washington's game, kind of their game style is obviously play that big physical kind of hit guys. And we saw that in game one, how we talked about it. They kind of took David Krejci out of the game within the first 30 seconds after Ovechkin hit him, and you really hear a lot about Krejci um, after that. But as the series went on, do you feel like they kind of got away from the physicality of not running guys, but obviously, you know, hitting guys hard, because obviously they still did the chippiness kind of stuff after the whistle and stuff like that. But I don't know if that kind of factors into like we talked about just that double overtime loss and how demoralizing that can be for a team. And we saw that in game four, but game four and really last night, I feel like they didn't play with their kind of big physical bruiser type uh, type of style that we saw a lot of in game one and a, and a decent amount of in game two. And maybe that kind of factored into them kind of faltering here late. Yeah. I, I honestly think they did kind of get away from it. I mm-hmm. think, you know, I'm not going to say it was panic, but I think, you know, just scoring goals was just more of a priority. And, you know, that kind of okay. makes the, uh, makes the whole physicality aspect of things fall into obscurity a little bit. Um, yeah. I mean, Tom Wilson was fairly tame overall. He did cross check Jake DeBrusque last night, mm-hmm. but was surprisingly tame overall. Uh, Garner Hathaway, you know, had his moments. We yeah. talked about him a little bit earlier. Nick Dowd was a big physical presence for them. He had a pretty good series. I thought overall scored a goal or two as well. Um, 
but yeah, overall, they really weren't that overwhelmingly physical. And that was one of the biggest things for me coming to this series. You know, if they can dominate physically, you know, are they going to win games in turn because of that physicality? And didn't end up being the case. Uh, we saw even Chara get involved physically a good amount. Uh, Dmitry Orlov, you know, really was only physical in terms of sending Kevin Miller to the hospital. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, Brennan Dillon's physical defense and big dude, six foot four. But overall, yeah, they kind of um, strayed away from it at times. And when you look back at it now, it kind of might stick out as a thing that hurt them. Yeah. I, you oh. know, if they play more physical, they win in the series. God, no. But, um, yeah, it, it kind of is noticeable. that They really weren't tremendously, overwhelmingly physical as they could have been. Even mm-hmm. Manta. You know, Manta is a guy that can score goals, but they acquired him for his size as well. And yeah, he wasn't that – tremendously physical outside of like Orlov burying to Karask at one point and getting fined for it. But mm-hmm. um, yeah, they didn't really dominate you. They didn't really bully you overall. Except, except for the first game, the first game, you know, they really stuck out That's there. What I mean, they set the tone early on and then you never really So I feel like it, each and every game, it kind of died away more and more to the point where yeah. I don't know if they just tried to maybe match the game the Bruins were playing. Cause I mean, we've, we've talked about it with Hall just flying by guys. I mean, there were a couple instances, Craig Smith did it a couple of times. Lazar had a good chance last night, blew by a couple of guys to get into the offensive zone. So I kind of wonder if they maybe tried to match the Bruins style of play and that kind of hurt them in the end, which yeah. obviously you have to do, like you said, I, there's a little bit of urgency when you're down three to one, you kind of have to prioritize trying to put as many goals on the board as you can, instead of trying to hit guys into the second row. But yeah, I just, I just found that kind of interesting. Like I said, it seemed like every game they kind of strayed more and more away from that physical kind of approach that they had really succeeded with in game one and really succeeded with all season. Yeah, the, like a big thing for them in terms of, you know, scoring frustration as they sort of shifted their focus, it seemed, you know, to try to obviously get on the board more, was in game four, they were one for seven on the power play. Yeah, that was a big, I mean, a big thing too. It really didn't talk about a whole lot as the Bruins kind of shut them down power play wise the majority of the series, which is good to see. Cause obviously they, I think they struggled with that in the regular season, didn't they? Washington had a decent amount of power play goals against the Bruins and yeah. the Bruins really didn't do a whole lot with their power play uh, against Washington for the year. So it was kind of a big storyline too. Like I said, we didn't really touch on a whole lot. Yeah. I mean, the Bruins came into, came into game five last night, five for 16 on the power play. 31% pretty good. Went on with three on the power play, but obviously they won the series, so it's not really that big of a deal. So they finished 26%, uh, five for 19 on the power play. And the Washington Capitals, heavily influenced by that one for seven performance, finished three for 21 on the power play. Yeah, Those it's not goals get it done. were Oshis in game two, um, and Ovechkin had a power play goal in game three and game four. Three for 21, 14%. Uh, that's pretty good for a power play unit that's as high powered as them. They switched it up a bit going into game five. Uh, didn't end up working tremendously for them. But yeah, that's a massive thing. We talked about it coming into the series. You know, you're going to have to limit that power play if, you know, if Washington's going to capitalize on these power plays, they're going to make it hurt. And uh, and that were the case, we probably wouldn't be talking about a game um, about the series being over, rather. Uh, might have been a little more prolonged if their power play was better. But, um, yeah, that was the main thing. That was one of the main things, man. They had to limit that power play, and they did. Three for 21 is pretty uh, spectacular. And in turn, in that mm-hmm. game four, the Bruins were three for five on the power play. Yeah, that was a big oh. thing, too, because they really hadn't gotten that. That was the other thing, too. They hadn't gotten that power play going really yet in the series. And, 
like you said, they kind of changed up where Pasternak was. Did they add Krejci to the first unit? I thought they said that in the broadcast, too, that they put Krejci on the first unit. That kind of shared some things up, too, with that game. Game four? Yeah, I might be mistaken, but I, I thought I heard them say that they flipped Krejci and was maybe – wasn't Grizzly on the first unit for the longest time? Yeah, points. I don't remember exactly how they – No. Drew out the power play in game four, but obviously it worked. I mean, that's yeah, the that's yeah, thing. for sure. <clears throat> Man, three for five against Washington. That's huge. That's huge. Yeah, that'll work. Stands out. And we forgot to mention uh, that goalie that some people seem to think is a bum. He sucks. Uh, past Jerry Cheevers for most postseason wins in franchise history in game four. Now at 54 at that point uh, with game five when he's at 55. Passing Jerry Cheevers, also on the list, Andy Moog, Frank Brimsek, and Tim Thomas, um, in that order. Descending behind Cheevers and Rask now. Tuka Rask, we just, we just can't sing the praises enough. Was just out of his mind this series. Absolutely out of his mind. Unconsciously good. Finishes with a 1.81 goals against average and a 941 save percentage. You really, really can't ask for much more than that. No, and just kind of to add to that, I don't know if you saw the Ty Anderson tweet, but he said, kind of also summed up how well Rass played. He said, quote, after dropping game one, Tuka Rass stopped 130 of 137 shots. That's a 949 save percentage over the next four games and stopped 40 of 41, as we mentioned, uh, in a series clinching victory. So, yeah, I mean, you couldn't have asked for much more from Rass. Like I said, all the people that wanted to start the rookie after the first game of the Stanley Cup playoffs, like we said it at the time, we'll say it again, pump the brakes on that one. Yeah, pump the brakes. Like, Not only that, people are like, oh, Tuka Rask can't win big games. Uh, he is tied with best game of the series. He is tied with Jonathan Quick That's for right. like third most active series clinching wins by a goaltender. Jonathan Quick, casually like one of the best playoff goaltenders over the past decade or so. So yeah, that's pretty good for Tuka Rask to be up there in mm-hmm. that company with him. Uh, Flurry and I think Lundqvist were up there. Maybe Lundqvist is the other goalie. Uh, speaking of Marc-Andre Fleury, that guy is just preposterous um, having another insane playoff run for Vegas so far. But our goalie is uh, – our goalie, Tuka Rask, is the subject to discussion at this point in time. Yeah, just just massive timely saves, you know, recovers after you know a tough one. That overtime uh, winner in game one was tough to swallow. Uh, rebounds just as about as good as you could have expected him to. Uh, one thing I forgot to mention earlier – that goes into Taylor Hall outside of just, you know, his offensive skill is, you know, we've seen some good defensive moments for Taylor Hall. It was in game four where I think it was Grizzly or McAvoy pinched and Hall stayed back on defense and he steps up at the defensive blue line and makes a play like he's Charlie McAvoy Mm -hmm. to shut down the rush um, for Washington. It was just fantastic. It might've been last night, honestly. I'm kind of like mixing it up in my head now. But, well, didn't one of his goals, he either lifted a stick of somebody in the defensive zone or stole a puck, and then that was the the insane goal that he had. Was there one of his goals I could have sworn? He started off playing phenomenally defensive-wise and then took it into the offensive zone and scored. I don't know if that's the one you're talking about. Or, might, uh, I'd have to yeah. look back. But I, it might have been last night that I think of it. But, yeah, man, Taylor Hall, outside of his goal-scoring ability, has had some nice uh, defensive moments as a uh Yeah, like I said, it's been so the far. best trade line addition there. Any team in, in the NHL this year, in my opinion. By far. Like, yeah, no, it's not even close. Uh, one other note as well, Patrice Bergeron um, made some history last night in terms of series clinching 
history for the Bruins, passing Wayne Cashman for the second most points um, in serious clinching games in Bruins history. Cashman had eight goals, 14 assists, and 22 uh, Yeah, eight goals, 14 assists, and 22 points. Uh, so he passed Cashman last night. And uh, the only player with more is David Krejci, playoff Krejci, <laughs> who didn't have the best playoff run we've seen David Krejci had, but um, I mean, the team won at five, to. so I'm, I'm really not going to. Yeah, absolutely. Two assists in the series, no goals, but I mean, Krejci's Krejci. I'm really not going to complain. Nothing really stuck out to me as a major area of concern for David Krejci. Maybe he's just saving it all for round two and beyond. We'll see. I was going to say, I'm like, he tends to be a guy that gets better as the playoffs goes on. So, yeah. And even and even if he's you know not putting up as many points as you'd like to, he's he's the he's the nucleus of that line still yeah, regardless that second line that's just continuing to be so good for you. Um, he's the nucleus of that line uh, right down the middle. So I'm not going to complain too much about David Krejci here, um, but you know, it's pretty interesting to look back at the po- the fact that he only had two points. He still won the series um, in five games. Just some other notes, Washington, you know, we we're talking about uh, special teams a little bit earlier. Um, in turn, with the Bruins limiting the power play so much, uh, they were 80, 85.7% on the penalty kill, so essentially 86%. That's pretty damn good. And uh, the Capitals, in turn, with the Bruins being a bit better on the power play, were at 73.6% on the penalty kill, so essentially 74%. So the Bruins held the advantage in power play and penalty kill uh, time and efficiency. So that's just huge. It's massive and huge. Wonderful. We'd love to see it. Um, adjectives. Yeah. Another big moment of this game that we have somehow not mentioned yet was Charlie McAvoy setting the physical tone early on both him and Wilson took the brunt of that hit, but I think, you know, the, the willingness for McAvoy to step up and set the physical tone was just massive there. Mm-hmm. Just a, another big moment. And the, increasing legacy for Charlie McAvoy. I mean, this guy, he's just proving more and more with time that he's the number one defenseman playing massive minutes when you need him to. There was one game where like, I think I saw he played the last, like he played five minutes and six seconds of the last like nine minutes of a game once. Jeez. Like that is otherworldly. That's like Duncan Keith, prime Duncan Keith type of ice time. Mm-hmm. Like Charlie McAvoy is just, out of this world with oh. that three three assist game as well uh finishes the series with at a point per game with five assists i mean charlie mcavoy is just continuing to prove how unbelievable he is oh i was gonna say defense. you could you could make the case i mean other than the unfortunate like we talked about it when it happened like there's no control of it that snap stick that he had in game one after that you could really make the case that he pretty much played a perfect series yeah like Honestly. there wasn't much to get mad about with him. I mean, he, we talked about it. That first line for Washington, matter who, it didn't matter who was up there. It seemed to get shut down when McAvoy was out on the ice. Uh, power play wise, you said it. The three assists, like he did everything he needed to and more in this series to really. If you didn't think he was a a Norris finalist to begin with at the end of the regular season, like he's just adding to that. Yeah. You know, he's just he's just preposterous. And on top of his you know ability to log huge minutes. We saw at points, and this stuck out to me in particular in a way, with Poshnok struggling for a good amount of this series to get going, um, even though, like we said, he ended up leading the team in points for the first round. You know, there was a, you know some negative points of the series for Poshnok, where McAvoy stepping into the offense like he did so consistently essentially made him like a fourth forward out there. 
at even strength. Like he he would he would step into the offensive zone, activate into the offense without hesitation, and he would never get burned for it. That's something I've talked about on the show a lot recently. Like defensemen that can activate into the offensive zone. Mike Riley does it pretty well a lot too in terms of Bruins. Matt Grizzlick, not as much, but you know, when he does it, it works out pretty well more often than not. Defensemen that can activate in the offensive zone and not get hurt for it are just are just so so valuable. Um Kel McCarr in Colorado is just arguably the best in the league at it. Charlie McAvoy just he doesn't play with fear. There's there's no fear in Charlie McAvoy's game. Zero, no, none. Uh, yeah, none that I've seen. It's so. he's just evolving more and more in time. Sometimes you might find yourself thinking, you know, can Charlie McAvoy get much better? And he just does. He just does. It's mm. just unbelievable. Um a pure as pure of a number one defenseman as it gets um around the league these days. He will be in the Norris discussion, could end up winning it. I'm not gonna say for sure, but uh we'll see once they uh, get to the award ceremony and stuff after the season, uh, whether he's winning his first Norris trophy or not. But uh, this season, he has certainly, certainly made the case for it. And like we said, just a few minutes ago was second on the team in points. David Pasternak was six McAvoy with uh, five assists. So essentially an assist per game, even though he had three and one uh, <clears throat> Bergeron with three goals and assists, pretty nice series for him. Brad Marshall with three big goals, Taylor Hall, two goals and assists, Jake DeBrusque, as we alluded to earlier, three points. Uh, saw some glimpses of playoff to Brusque, which was nice. Craig Smith with three points. Matt Grizzlick with three points. Nick Ritchie with three points. Shelly Coyle with two. Krejci with two. Riley with two. Lazar and Miller each with one. Overall, just a really nice series. Another thing I think is worth noting, Jared Tenorti had to step in last night and um, played pretty well. It's been a s- bit of a surprise overall for him to see how comfortable he's been for the Bruins since being claimed on waivers from Nashville. A really nice depth defensive with size. And we couldn't go without mentioning Connor Clifton. Uh, We were both a little bit nervous about Connor Clifton playing on his left side coming in. But one of the things we talked about is Clifton sort of like Frederick as a forward, but Clifton obviously as a defenseman need to find that balance Mm -hmm. between playing like a cliffy hockey maniac and letting the game come to him, you know, being calm when he needs to, making the right plays. Connor Clifton absolutely did that. And, you know, he didn't – it didn't translate to any offensive production. You know, he didn't have points in any, four game, any of the four games he played in. But, man, Connor Clifton looked – he played the best hockey of his season easily. Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, I was going to say he kind of flew under the radar in the series because, you know, he's not, a, like you said, a name that's going to flash – you know, light up the radar in the defensive core, but I'm yeah, right there with you. I thought going into it didn't have a great season. There were some question marks at times this year with him, but he stepped up tremendously in this series. Didn't do anything to hurt you out there. That's for sure. I mean, he played like, yeah, like you said, it's probably his best hockey of the season, maybe of his career. You can make the case for, but uh, hopefully you can see more of the same from him moving forward. Cause you don't know, you don't know if you're going to need him. You don't know what the Miller situation is. You don't know what the Lausanne situation is going to be. But if you can continue to get this from Connor Clifton, then you'll be in re- really good shape. Yeah. Yeah. The depth can really stand out, especially in a case like Clifton's where he really, really stepped up, really found that balance he needed to to make him an effective player and not uh, too overly aggressive like we've seen him in, at times in the past. Also with depth as well, we talked about the fourth line a bit. Now, uh, when you're getting your fourth liners – Winning faceoffs at the uh, at the rate they did, Sean Corelli when he had to step into the dot was 
um, by occasion was 57.14%. Chris Wagner, I'm not sure how many faceoffs he took, but he was 100% of the dot. So that's nice to see from Wagner. <laughs> one for one. One for one, maybe. <laughs> and uh, Curtis Lazar, the most frequent faceoff taker on that fourth line, was 58.62% uh, on the draw. A little bit higher than Patrice Bergeron at 58.54. So that's just, you know, a sample size for you to look at. Uh, both of them in different parts of the lineup doing pretty good in the defensive um, defensive zone draws and, you know, winning draws. So nice to see from the fourth line. You really got a good amount from your depth this series. Overall, you know, outside of that tough game, one and some moments across along the way, um, just a really, really – uh, nice bit of hockey and a five-game sample size from the Bruins. And mm-hmm. there's really just nothing worth complaining about more so than the many successes this team had. And that's beautiful. Closing it out in five games, now they got some time to rest um, before they get going in the second round against either the Penguins or the Capitals. Uh, not the Penguins or the Capitals, excuse me, the Penguins or the Islanders. I would rather play the Capitals again than play the Islanders in all honestly, yeah. In all honesty. We like, talk, we we'll talk. give Washington a second chance. Yeah, like I'm kinda having doubts about something I said earlier. Um like last week that I think Washington's gonna be your toughest series of the playoffs and at least in the Eastern Conference matchups if you get past the first round like they did. But I don't know, man. I think the Islanders and the Penguins can give you a harder series, particularly the Islanders, as I'll get to a little later. Yeah, I think but, it's the Islanders. I don't have any – if there's a series that I don't have any concerns with, and it's probably going to be strange to see just because of the, the firepower, I if they play the Penguins, I think this is another series that's over in five for the Bruins. I really do. Yeah, I could see that as well. Uh, just some notes before we get into you know potential next-round matchups with the Bruins. Um, from this morning, uh, Don Sweeney and Kevin Miller said – Kevin Miller is doing okay. So or in the recovery phase, they're kind of just like waiting and seeing a little bit with this off time. Uh, see what happens with Kevin Miller. See when they can get him back. Um, Sweeney also said that Audrey Kasha will not be available for the remainder of the playoffs. Really just that. another situation. You really got to feel for Kasha. Um, what the future of his playing days entail are certainly up in the air right now. He's an RFA this summer. Um, I'm not sure if the Bruins are going to qualify him to try and, you know, negotiate a deal with him or just, you know, not qualify him and let him hit unrestricted free agency. Uh, but yeah, not an ideal situation for Andre Kasha right now. Um, we'll see what his future entails down the road, but we will not see him potentially in a Bruins uniform ever again. We'll, um, you know, there's no guarantee he's back with the Bruins next year. We'll see. That's a story for down the road, but yeah, he is officially ruled out for the remainder of the playoffs. Um, Bruins will have two days off the ice before returning to practice on Wednesday at warrior. Um, so yeah, kind of expected, but just some updates in terms of going forward the next couple of days for the Bruins and uh, yeah, it's all in preparation for either the Penguins or the Islanders. And if you're asking me, I'm taking the Penguins all day. If I'm the Bruins, I'm hoping the Penguins on this series. Yeah, absolutely. Like I said, I'm with you. I mean, the Bruins, we talked about it before the playoffs even started, you know, if what we thought, you know, the Bruins should have done and if they should have kind of lost out to get to play the Penguins in the first round, because we obviously wanted to match up with the Penguins more so than we wanted to match up with uh, Washington. But, yeah, I'm with you. I think the Bruins match up better against the Penguins. They have the better goaltending situation than the Penguins do. Um, obviously, you have to worry about Sidney Crosby in a series with the Penguins and Evgeny Malkin, of course. But, yeah, I just think the Bruins 
you saw it in the regular season. They match up better against Pittsburgh. Boston won that series season series uh, with a record of 5-3-0. and You look at the Islanders series. The Islanders, of course, we knew the Bruins struggled with them in the regular season. Uh, the Islanders won the series. Uh, five wins, two losses in the one overtime game. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the Bruins, like I said, we get the stats that we're not really going to run through too much unless you want to. But all signs point to the Bruins matching up much better against Pittsburgh than the Islanders. So that's the direction I would hope that series goes in and can't believe I'm saying this, but I would like the <laughs> got a root for the Penguins. Yeah, me too. I just Tristan Jari has had some good moments against the Bruins this season, but I just I would just rather face Tristan Jari versus Varlamov or Sorokin. Um, mm-hmm. Sorokin has come along pretty nicely in his first season as an Islander uh, from Russia. Uh, just seems to be getting better with time. If you run at him or Varlamov, Varlamov has had. Some shaky moments so far um, in the playoffs, but I mean, he's still a damn good goaltender. He's a guy that proved this season most recently uh, that he can win games for the Islanders. He, you know, with the defensive style, uh, he can really uh, step up and steal games. So, uh, yeah, I am much more leaning towards the Penguins, especially in the goaltending department. I think Jari is much more beatable um, than Varlamov or Sorokin. Um, Evgeny Malkin is also just like not having a tremendous playoff run and had some injury troubles this season. So that's something mm-hmm. worth noting um, for the Penguins. I mean, he has two points to two games, but it doesn't seem like to me based off what I've watched and what I've seen a few Penguins fans say on Twitter, that um, people are necessarily thrilled with what Malkin is giving them right now. And I really think, you know, it's a long time ago that the Bruins have proven that, you know, they are capable of shutting down, Penguins, you know, different coaching staff as well. But um, I think the Bruins, they just match up better against Pittsburgh. They did in the regular season. Um, Pittsburgh also has a an experienced playoff performer, Jeff Carter, playing pretty well for them right now, which is kind of stealing the show for them over Sidney Crosby, who has just one goal in four games. Jeff Carter has three goals and an assist in four games pretty interesting i mean at this mm-hmm. point in his career jeff carter still still pretty nails just at the 400 goal mark not too long ago in his career yeah i'm i'm taking the penguins all day if i you know had the pick i just i think it's easier to expose them and their weaker defensive core than the islanders um than the islanders as a whole defensively oriented team with speaking of that defense, arguably one of the best defensive pairings in the league at this point in time and uh adam pellick and ryan pulock um, I'm taking the Penguins all day, all yep. day, if I had to pick. Right there with you. Yeah, it's just... Of course, we'll have to wait and see, because that series is still 2-2, and could very well potentially go the distance, so... What did you pick in uh, that series? Did you have... Um, I oh, I can't remember now. I think I picked the Islanders in... Yeah, I had Islanders in seven. I think I had them in six, I want to say. But then yeah, I had the Bruins beating the Islanders in seven, so... Yeah, I have the Bruins being the Islanders. I think I had seven as well. Um, just to run through stats, like Ryan mentioned earlier in the season series, the Bruins were 26.3% of the power play, um, as opposed to the Penguins, just 8% of the power play. Uh, 92% of the penalty kill is pretty damn good versus 73.7% um, for the Penguins. Average 2.63 goals per game versus 2.38 for the Penguins. Allowed 2.38 goals per game versus 2.63 for the Penguins. Pretty um, tight margin there, and we're five and three in the series uh, versus the Penguins being three and five. And then you have the Islanders. The Bruins were just 16% on the power play 
um, for, for 25. The Islanders were 15% through for 20. 85% of the penalty kill for the Bruins, 84 for the Islanders, uh, 2.25 goals per game versus 2.63 for the Islanders and vice versa um, in terms of goals against. And then the Bruins were 3-3-2 in the regular season. The Islanders were 5-2-1 against them. So clearly the Bruins match up much better against the Penguins, and we are hoping that the Penguins yeah. come out of this series. I was going to say, I'm like, those. St- I mean, the power play and penalty kill is only just part of the game, but if those Islanders and Bruins stats with how close they are doesn't scream a seven-game dogfight of a series compared to the Pittsburgh stats compared to the Bruins stats, like, should be very obvious to Bruins fans who you should be rooting for in that series. Yeah, I think you can beat the Penguins in five games at this point in time, like Mm -hmm. uh, you mentioned a little earlier. Yeah, they just prevent a much more favorable matchup. I'd rather not deal with Pelic and Pulak and Matt Barzell. Yeah, Um, I I saw that tweet that (laughs) that Yeah, God forbid the Islanders would win that series. You'd never hear the end of the uh, the draft discussion that's been going on since what was that was what 2015 that draft. Yeah, I do not need it. I do not need that in my life. No, that's just another headache to go along with. God forbid, you know, Rass doesn't play well in that series either. Now you get a double-edged sword you got to go after. So Yeah. Oh, man. That would not be fun. That would be an insufferable kind of stay off of Twitter for a while after that series ends if it is what uh, what will happen. Yep. And uh, just across the league, the biggest surprise of the playoffs, I'd say, so far, um, there are some pretty – Surprising the storylines, if you will, with the Bruins closing it out in five. If you're one of the people like us that had that game go- series going a little longer. The Edmonton Oilers are currently in jeopardy of being swept oh. by the Winnipeg Jets. Oh, I did. I was wondering who won that game last night. I saw they were down 2 nothing the last time. Shout I out to Nikolai Ehlers in that game. It's about the 14th time I've guessed the Bucci Overtime Challenge correctly in my life mm-hmm. for years and years of playing. And I finally got picked last night. Retweeted by John Bucci-Gross. Uh, I'm going to get a t-shirt in the mail at some point. Nice. Finally won Very the nice. Overtime Challenge. I have wanted to buy merch from his store for years and years, but I told myself, no, you're not doing it. You're not buying any merch. You're earning it. You're, you're earning gonna it. You're going to win it, you're yeah. Gonna, you're going to get picked someday. Let's go. I did it last night. I was pumped up. My brother was getting ready to go to sleep, and I burst into his room and said, I just won the Bucci Overtime Challenge. <laughs> um, he didn't really care, but, you know. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay so, yeah, great don't give a shit all that matters is that i won i won i did it let's go um the fraudulent st louis blues led by the fraudulent um jordan bennington got swept talked about it last week if there's any series to end in a sweep it was colorado over st louis and it did st louis blues lost last night jordan bennington is 0 for 9 in the playoffs since game seven since, since, since the thing that won't be mentioned Yes. Well, maybe if he focused more on goaltending than trying to fight everybody for some reason, because that's the that's what a goalie should be doing out there is going after guys. Maybe you. Philip Grubauer. He would be Grubauer golfing right now. He said, "Yeah, the best that was quote, the best comments ever." Yep. Of the playoffs, and it's funnier too because if you watch that altercation, Grubauer's I forget who he's going at it with in front of that. You know, settled it. You know, he had a he had a beef with a player on the Blues. He settled it. They went at it a little bit in front of the net. It's over. Jordan Bennington has to be the center of attention skating all the way to the end of the ice. Like, buddy, you're not Ron Hextall. This isn't the freaking earlier 2000s of the 90s. Like, you know, goalies don't just do that. It doesn't work that way, especially when you're Jordan Bennington. You have a reputation for trying to fight people and skate to the end of the ice for it to not work once. It's the third time it's happened this season, and it hasn't worked once because you're a fraud and people don't want to deal with you. Um, 
it was so satisfying to see them get swept. Yeah, absolutely. So, so satisfying to see them get swept. Um, yeah, it just further proves how good Colorado is. I mean, they just pretty thoroughly dominated the majority of that series. Um, knock out the Blues in four. The Wild are keeping things interesting against Vegas. Uh, I had Vegas six in the first round, but the pesky Wild are keeping things interesting with their new uh, Kirill Kaprizov-led team, even though Kaprizov isn't necessarily lighting it up in the playoffs so far. Um the Lightning and Panthers, that's been a fantastic series. The Battle of Florida, uh, the Panthers are in trouble a bit right now. Uh, I had Tampa in five. I think they'll, you know, there's a good chance they end it in five, but the Panthers have been scrappy. They're never necessarily out of a game uh, for the most part, so maybe they'll keep things interesting against Tampa. Carolina and Asheville went to double overtime last night. Surprise, that's been as big as a season. Yeah, I mean, that's that whole, like, that's home ice advantage right there. You know, they got, yeah, I think, they got to have like minimum 85% capacity in Nashville. I think, that yeah, I think like they, a pretty yeah. full barn. Um, just that place always has a fantastic atmosphere. I was talking um, to some friends saying if there's any other NHL rink, you know, on the top of my bucket list is Bridgestone Arena in Nashville. I just want to go to the city too. I just think Nashville looks like a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, Bridgestone Arena is just crazy. Spot. Yeah. Home ice advantage, man. Home ice advantage. Nashville keeps things interesting. Um, I had Carolina in six, so but Nashville evens it up at two, double overtime winner. Luke Cunningham with the hilarious celebration, um, just jumps. I forget who it was. He jumped in the arms of, but just like essentially tackled them. Completely so excited over here. I like DeBrusque and McAvoy last year, and DeBrusque um, jumped on McAvoy and essentially tackled them after an overtime winner for McAvoy, which was breaking a nice goal draw for McAvoy that he had at that point in time, but. Um, just funny to look at the parallel, see how um, comparable those are. Pretty similar looking sellies. Um, Toronto and Montreal, interesting series. Cole Caulfield's going to play tonight. Um, they should have done that in game one because he's really good and he likes scoring goals. And the Canadians need players that can score goals. Who would have thunk it? They're, you know, it's like, Claude Julian, it's like Claude Julian never left. Uh, Dominic Ducharme just doesn't really prefer young players necessarily. And put Jesperi Kokaniemi in the other night. Now it's Cole Caulfield. Um, we'll see how that works. The Canadians, they're playing the Leafs tonight. And then we talked about the Islanders and the Penguins earlier. Uh, they're tied at two. So we see how that goes. We are hoping for the Penguins to win the series. But, yeah, things are pretty interesting. I'd say the uh, Jets being up 3 nothing in the Oilers was definitely not something I was expecting. But No, that's for sure. I mean – McDavid and Drysaddle just haven't really been there. Dry, they showed up last night, but game two and uh, game one, they did not record a single point. But um, that was funny because their first point of the game was right after they put up a graphic on the broadcast saying that McDavid and Drysaddle had never gone uh, three scoreless games together in a row in their whole careers up until that point. And then, like, right after, they both get a point. Um, what a wacky happenstance. That's what we call a jinx. Yep. And, um, yeah, man, the Oilers could get swept tonight. They have that to be play back-to-back because the uh, North Division Series got underway a little bit later than everything else. So I think they're just trying to speed things up a little. Um, Connor McDavid, Leon Settle, and the Edmonton Oilers are in jeopardy of getting swept by the Winnipeg Jets tonight. Did not see that happening. Had Edmonton at six. Mm-hmm. Thought uh, we were going to see more from McDavid and Settle. You know, superstar players, you expect more. But um, one last note before, um, unless Ryan has any other Bruins thoughts that I wanted to bring up, which is some interesting um, comments by Ovechkin after last night's game. 
um, saying the fourth game, they were fresher than us. And obviously we knew we have to play better. Yeah, I'd say so. But it's um, interesting to see Ovechkin just be so flat out honest. He did not comment on his future with the team, by the way. Um, I believe he was asked that. But yeah, he also said we didn't play our way in the fourth game. I thought tonight we had a very good game. We just didn't score goals. And that's what it came down to to yeah. uh, end the series for the Bruins. Just wanted to bring those quotes up because I forgot to earlier. And additionally, on top of that, Zdeno Chara wasn't made available to the media, which isn't tremendously surprising, but uh, it did happen and, you know, was a bit interesting. And uh, Tom Wilson didn't kill anyone, so that's good. We were Very kinda, good to see. Yep. We were kind of worried about, you know, the Bruins leaving the series with some potentially major injuries. You know, Kevin Miller is hurt, but uh, we're hoping right now that it's not a tremendously serious injury for Kevin Miller. I was honestly expecting there to be more injuries with how the Capitals and especially Wilson tend to play. But Bruins no, I think this, overall I... ended up pretty good. Yeah, I was just going to offer that point. I was going to say I think that that's a testament to, you know, the the series ending uh, in five games, let alone going to maybe six, maybe the distance, and maybe some guys getting nicked up uh, as it goes on. But, yeah, I mean, not, nothing else too much for me for the Bruins. Like I said, just go go Penguins. That pains me to say, but hopefully that's the matchup they get. Bruins now, of course, have – I don't know how many off days they're going to have with however long the series goes for the, the Penguins and the Islanders. But uh, – Good to get them rested up and good to get, like I said, maybe some guys are more hurt than they're leading on. It's it's the Stanley Cup playoffs, so that wouldn't surprise anybody if that's the case. So these extra days off uh, can only help you moving forward. Yeah. And also in terms of injuries, uh, the Jeremy Lozon injury doesn't really strike me from anything I've heard as anything that will prolong, him, uh, prolong his absence from the lineup too long. So hopefully that ends up being the case with Lozon. Um, so he can be back in the mix as well if they choose to use him. But, yeah, overall, it could have been a lot worse in terms of injuries with the Capitals. So mm-hmm. take what I can get. You know, Hopefully Lozon and Miller are back sooner rather than later, but neither of them really seem like tremendously serious injuries at this point in time, so hopefully it stays that way. And on, yeah. to, uh, on to the Islanders or the Penguins. If you uh, play the Islanders, you get home ice advantage. If you play the Penguins, you do not. So, ooh, that has a little bit of a wrinkle into that series. I think I would still rather go with Pittsburgh, though. Yep, me too. All right, like we said, we'll have to wait and see on that. Um, on to the Celtics, and I'll start off by saying uh, I was wrong. That pains me to say about the Celtics. They did win in the playing series. I know we talked about you know should they win, should they lose. Do we think they're going to make it that far? I still personally think they should have lost the first play-in game, won the second if they could have to get Philadelphia because you saw in game one of that Brooklyn series. Uh, it's going to be a tough series. It's going to be a short one, but it's going to be a tough one. Uh, but we'll start with the play-in game because, like I said, we have to give some credit where credit is due. Celtics, of course, knock out the Wizards uh, 118 to 100 and officially secured the seventh seed. Again, made the mistake of doing that, in my opinion. But a win's a win. It's good. You know, the Celtics didn't want to just kind of lose out and not really give an effort. Um, but when the season needed the most, of course, Jason Tatum steps up. We talked about it. No Jalen Brown for the rest of the postseason, the rest of the, you know, final week the Celtics may have in this season with having to play Brooklyn. Um, but Jason Tatum showed up in the play-in game, showed up in game one of the Brooklyn game as well. But 50 points in that uh, game against Washington, uh, eight rebounds, four assists, two blocks of steal, had 32 points in the second half to really put the game away. Without Jalen Brown, Kemba Walker did show up in the playing game. Didn't show up in game one. We'll get to that in a second. Uh, kind of, we saw the glimpses of old playoff Kemba, which was good to see. I thought had 29 points for the Celtics. 
shot 41% from the field, 43% from deep, which was good to see from Kemba had seven rebounds. Uh, he had 19 points in the second half as well. So kind of helped Tatum uh, when the Celtics we've talked about it all year, they need some help for Jason Tatum for Jalen Brown. Now without Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum, of course, really needs some help. So good to see Kemba kind of step into his uh, old playoff Kemba like mentality for at least one game. Um, on the flip side of things, defensive wise, the Celtics, they were able to shut down Washington's Washington's dynamic duo of Bradley Beal and Russell Westbrook. Beal finished with just 22. Westbrook finished with just 20. Celtics really kept Westbrook in check, in check really all, every game they played against him this year. Um, Bradley Beal was dealing with a hamstring injury, so that kind of maybe hindered his performance a little bit, but I thought he still played pretty well. Celtics were able to, to knock him out. Um, and like we've talked about all season, you know, the Celtics, again, it didn't really show up in the play-in game, the secondary scoring. You did get 12 points from uh, Tristan Thompson eight from Evan Fournier, uh, seven from Marcus Smart. Rob Williams had four in a limited sample size because he was dealing with an in, with a turf toe injury. Uh, Langford and Eastmith both had three points. Ojale, Pritchard, and Cornette all got in late. Uh, they didn't score. Carson Edwards had a two in garbage time, and then Grant Williams and Tremont Waters in garbage time didn't really do anything. So obviously moving into that first round against Brooklyn, kind of the thought, Jason Tatum, he's not going to be able to put up 50 every night, so you're going to need some help from him. And it's kind of funny that in the outline, I put, you know, specifically looking at guys like Evan Fournier and maybe Jabari Parker, who hadn't really played over the last couple of games for the Celtics in the regular season and then didn't get in in the play-in game. Um, Jabari Parker played well. We'll transition into that Brooklyn game because, you know, the, the Washington game is old news. Um, Celtics did what they had to do in that game. But going to the Brooklyn uh, series in round one. Celtics started off strong, of course, but they fall late. Boston outscored Brooklyn 21 to 16 in the first quarter, led 53 to 47 at halftime. So that gave a lot of people some hope, I think, going into the second half. But as we've seen with the Celtics really all season, the last couple of years, the third quarter was their undoing. Uh, they were outscored 31 to 20 in the third quarter. At one point, I think they were getting outscored like 20 to four. It was something ridiculous. Uh, I think it was 18 to four. I thought it was a mistake when they put it on the broadcast, but nope, they were outscored 18 to four at one point in the third quarter, outscored 57 to 40 in the second half entirely. And once again, um, without Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum needed help and didn't really get any for that matter. Tatum finishes with 22. Marcus Smart had 17. Fournier finishes with 10. Kemba Walker had 15 on five of 16 shooting three of seven from deep. So Kemba Walker kind of fell back into his old ways of, just really struggling when the Celtics needed him most, which is at this point, to me at least, I don't know if you feel the same way, gotten incredibly frustrating to watch with Kemba Walker. I feel like I've gone from one of the biggest Kemba Walker defenders to now being like, I don't want anything to do with Kemba Walker anymore. That might be a little harsh to say because the guy's dealt with injuries, but I've just kind of gotten over it at this point. The fact that he um, just has been so hit or miss this year, but that has factored into the Celtics all season. That's kind of been their MO, as we've talked about, the Kings of inconsistency. Rob Williams had a great game off the bench. We'll get a little bit into him in a second. Um, finishes with 11 points and a single postseason game high, nine blocks for the Celtics. Like I said to my dad, because he was like, oh, that's a great game for Rob Williams. Like, yeah, it would have helped in a, a winning effort. But that's nice to see Rob Williams dealing with an injury, like I said, turf toe. He played well. Jabari Parker, I thought, played in extremely well off the bench. He finishes with nine points, gave the Celtics, Celtics a little bit of a spark when he came in. And I was critical of him. Of course, Mike, you remember when they signed him, I thought that wasn't a great, great pickup because he's not good on that great on the, on the defensive end. Uh, I thought he played really well in this game. Kind of had to go up against Kevin Durant a couple of times, shut him down at, at times. Um, I think he got on James Harden a couple times and hardly didn't do anything off of him either. But yeah, before we jump in kind of the, to the Nets three stars taking this thing over your initial thoughts on uh, the Celtics kind of performance 
in game one, or if you want to go back to the playing game, anything that kind of stood up from you in that game as well, uh, feel free to hit on that. Yeah, the playing game was a surprise. I mean, I mm-hmm. thought they're going to lose. <laughs> I alluded to last week, but um, yeah, they. I mean, it just comes down to you know, do you want to do you want to lose and play Philly and probably lose in the first round? Do you want to um, win and lose the Nets? But yeah. <laughs> I mean, how long do you want your season to go for? Four games or five? Yeah, I mean, it it just sucks though. Like I still kind of feel this way even after they did win the playing game and had their moments in game one. But yeah, I just, I don't know. It just, it just sucks to see Kemba fall back into obscurity a little bit. I mean, 15 mm-hmm. points isn't terrible, but you know, when he gives you that 29 point sample size to work on, uh, you're kind of expecting more just kind of keeps with the theme of Walker this year was, you know, partially because of his injuries. It's just been super hard for him to get consistent um, for long stretches of time, and he falls back a little bit here. Only 15 points could use a little more from him. Smart scoring 17 was nice. Um, Fournier hasn't really impressed me that much since no, I like, overall. I like the two second round picks back for Evan Fournier. I know we joke a lot yeah. about Danny Ainge not wanting to trade draft picks, but those are draft picks I'd like back. <laughs> He's been awful. Yeah, it really hasn't gone tremendously well overall for him. Um, Rob Williams, though, I mean, this is a guy I've kind of never given up my optimism on, so it feels good when he plays well. Damn solid game for him off the bench. I thought he mm-hmm. was good. You know, I had some really um, nice defensive moments. That's, you know, one of the things that sticks out with him is that defensive ability when he's on. He's a pretty damn good defensive player. Uh, Parker, I mean, I definitely didn't expect Jabari Parker to show up like he did, but that was a nice surprise. Uh, Neeson at that five off the bench. But, yeah, overall, it just – Sadly, wasn't enough. That'll come uh, when you're missing Jalen Brown as that second fiddle uh, to Jason Tatum. But, uh, yeah, it's just, you know, there were some moments in this game, but it sucks that, um, unfortunately, it just wasn't enough. Mm-hmm. You're going to, more often than not, or if not every game, score at least 100 points to beat the um, to beat the Nets. So, if you're only dropping 93, you're just not going to win. Um, yeah. But, yeah, there were some moments, but overall, it's just disappointing. Mm-hmm. It's just so tough to really get excited, you know, even though they had um, some optimism for the more optimistic fans heading into halftime with a six point lead. It was just really hard for me to be like, oh, yeah, like, let's go. Like, time for time to keep moving. Like, you know, we got this. We can win. They can win this game mm-hmm. uh, with just an absurd trio on that other side as you have in the outline combining for 82 of their 104 points, is just bonkers. Ridiculous. Um, yeah. Yeah. Any, anytime I'm, I just like have the potential of getting excited about something in this series, it's just going to be squashed by the fact that they're playing such a formidable big three. That stinks, mm-hmm. but you know, you got to take, take what you can get out of the positives. And there were some, but overall it just didn't lead to a victory, which stinks. No, I mean, watching that game too. Like, I mean, you, I'm not going to crap on it because they played extremely well, the Celtics did in that first half. I mean, they held Brooklyn 40.5% from the field in the first half, and they held them to just one of 13 shooting from deep. I mean, they did that with Washington. The Wizards only hit three threes. I think they were three for 21 in the playing game. So the Celtics, you know, their defense has stepped up uh, over the last two games. But sitting there watching it, as we went into halftime and then when uh, the, the Nets came out and kind of started scoring in the third quarter, I was sitting there with my dad and I'm like, at this point, you're just sitting there waiting for which one of these big three guys out of Durant, Kyrie and Harden is just going to go screw this. I'm done 
effing around in this game. Let's take this thing over. And they did. And I was talking to him afterwards and I'm like, the Brooklyn Nets, the way the series is going to go down, I feel like is the same way. I don't know if you remember uh, those Warriors team from a couple of years ago. And granted, it was a Warriors team that had Kevin Durant on it, where teams would have a lead in the first half or in the first quarter. And then Durant, Thompson and uh, Steph Curry would just be like, you're done. We're not going to let you play. We let you play around for a quarter, a quarter and a half. Now we're just going to turn into the superstar three that we are. And you have no chance of winning this game. And I feel like that's how this series is going to go down. I feel like Brooklyn's going to sit there and go, that's fine. We'll let Jason Tatum go off in the first quarter or first half. Cause it's just Jason Tatum. We have to worry about. And then, pick or choose the two or the one or two guys in the second half, whether it's Durant and Kyrie or Durant and Harden or whoever to say, there's nobody outside of Tatum on this team that can start uh, stop us. So we're just going to go off and put this game away pretty handedly. And that's exactly what happened in this game. You said it, they combined for 82 out of Brooklyn's 104 points. Like the big thing for me is it's not going to happen because it's just, and it's not again, nothing against the Celtics. It's just such a tall task to shut down all three of these guys with, especially with no Jalen Brown. Cause if you looked at it, if the Celtics were healthy going into the series, you'd have Tatum against Durant. You'd have uh, Jalen Brown probably on James Harden. And then you'd have Marcus Smart on Kyrie Irving and you might have a chance, but now you have, and they did this a couple times in game one, which kind of bugged me. They had Tristan Thompson guarding James Harden a couple times. And that wasn't due to switches. There were times where Harden brought the floor, the ball up the floor and Tristan Thompson was the first guy to go after him, which I mean, Harden didn't score a lot on him but that's just not what you want to have happen. You had Evan Fournier on one trip up the floor, Kyrie broke his ankles. And then two trips later, I think Durant did the same exact thing. So that's not a matchup that you're going to win if you're the Celtics. So we talked about it before the playoffs started, you know, not having Jalen Brown is obviously a huge loss and it's just going to rear its ugly head even more in this series. Cause that's my biggest thing is if you think you're going to stand a chance in this series, you have to shut down, one if not two of these guys out of this big three and it's just going to be such a tall task to do because like I said they all three of these guys have the mentality where and we saw it with Kyrie in the fourth quarter it just went well I'm done here we're gonna end this game right now he came up the floor and hit two or three threes right in a row and I'm like this game's over like yeah you, just, you have no chance it's just sad it's just sadly not obtainable no with the, with that's the what I mean. it's, brown yeah. injury it's just not You're obtainable. An uphill battle it's it's just this team can just hit an on switch. Mm-hmm. This Brooklyn team can just hit the on switch and just turn it on. It's like a situation like this, and I'm not saying this is like an insult to the Celtics, where they can kind of just cruise, like you yeah. alluded to. They can just cruise, and they'd be like, "All right, like, see you later. We're just gonna take over and win real quick." Mm-hmm. Um, and that's just the luxury of having three superstar players. But yeah, it's just it's just the ma- easily the main reason that's the Celtics are just going to be overmatched. I think they're going to get swept sadly in this series. Mm-hmm, I'm right there with you. And, uh, it's just going to be a sad damper. It's just yeah. sad. You know, you, you fight in the playing game only to have to play three superstars. Yeah. Have to have this. Yeah. Stare you guys down. Out. It's just tough. It's a tough yeah. scene. And it I stinks. mean, at least they don't have to lose to Philly. I mean, yeah, exactly. Yeah, that being sufferable. Would but suck. Yes, it would suck. But um, yeah, it's just tough. Pretty demoralizing to, you know, see, but, mm-hmm. but I mean, there was some positives. Like we said, we talked about the defensive kind of stand the Celtics put on in the first half. Uh, you mentioned it. Rob Williams had a very good game, 11 points, nine rebounds. I said it, the nine blocks were a single uh, post game franchise record for the Celtics. Uh, he's a guy I'm curious to see, you know, how much his injury factors into this series. Cause 
off the, I mean, Theo Suddox, I think it's a no brainer that you should be starting him because when he came in off the bench, we talked about it during the regular season and we kind of called him the spark, pl- the spark plug, the lightning rod type of guy where he gave the Suddox a ton of energy right off the bench. And you saw that again at times in game one where, you know, he obviously the nine blocks. So he's having a tremendous time on the defensive end. Uh, we look like a force out there. And I thought, you know, if you can maybe get him up to speed and, you know, be as healthy as he could possibly be, could be a sneaky factor in this series. You know, maybe a guy you try to put on, Durant just because of the length that Rob Williams has obviously he's not going to keep up with Durant's speed but I mean there was a three Durant took the other night that he tried to shoot over Rob Williams and he came nowhere close so there's a little bit of I don't know if you want to say an intimidation factor because you don't you wouldn't think a guy like Kevin Durant is intimidated by a guy like Robert Williams just because of the type of the two players that they are and the background that Durant has compared to Williams's background you know play skill set wise but I don't know I think Rob Williams you know could be a factor in this series if you give him the chance to start if his injury doesn't kind of derail things. And then I said that Jabari Parker had a very good game. We haven't seen a lot of him of late. I don't know if that's just matchup wise or Stevens just doesn't want to go to him, but he's another guy. I talked about it when, you know, they got him in the first couple games he played, he looked good. He kind of, I said, took over Rob Williams's lightning rod off the bench role that he had early in the season. So maybe if you can get Jabari Parker, maybe these are the two guys you lean on off the bench. If you want to keep Williams on the bench and have him come off and, put up a stat line like this night in and night out. And then you have Jabari Parker come in. I know he didn't score a ton, just nine points in 21 minutes. But if you can get some type of, that's the big thing. I keep harping back on, I sound like a broken record. You need to get something with Jason Tatum to even stand a chance of winning just one game in this series. If you can steal one, maybe that gives us a little bit more confidence moving forward. But I don't know. You just look at this team. You look at the kind of all the stat lines from game one. You you sit there and you wonder where is the scoring going to come from? You hope Kemba Walker can bounce back. You would, think he would be able to but who knows you don't know what you're going to get from Evan Fournier we've seen times this season he there was three games he scored zero points for the Celtics but he also has the ability to drop 20 on you in the blink of an eye so you don't know what you're going to get from him Marcus Smart's always a wild card I think we you know you said that enough we've said that enough about Marcus Smart there's nights where he can drop 20 on you and then come out and scored like five so you don't know what you're going to get from him like if you're the Brooklyn Nets, you're sitting there going, we're up one nothing. If we shut Jason Tatum down for three games, the series is over. Like, What's the deal with, you know, if you're looking for a guy that can potentially have some more scoring, why do you think Peyton Pritchard played so little? Just like I, matchup-wise? I, I, like yeah, I think throw it's, him with the Wolves against... I think it's, yeah, matchup-wise. I feel I like mean, they could have just found, like... I don't know, man. Like, I feel the like thing, they could have found more time for him. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, the thing I noticed, too, with Steve Nash, and I said this a couple times, when Brad Stevens, obviously, one of the things that he gets harped on a lot for is his rotations. And, yes, Jason Tatum did play 41 and a half minutes almost in this game. There were times where Kevin Durant and Kyrie Irving for Steve Nash played the majority. The first quarter, Kevin Durant and Kyrie played the entire first quarter. Jason Tatum didn't. Brad Stevens took him out with like six minutes left and brought him back in with two or three. So I think that's kind of be the thing that's going to handcuff Pritchard is he's not a guy that's going to be able to guard Kyrie Irving, in my opinion, because there's a rare few that can guard Kyrie. Say what you will about him, but he obviously has the phenomenal skill set of being able to just to dribble circles around guys and break ankles left and right. James Harden is a guy that Peyton Pritchard's probably not going to match up well against because Harden has the size that that Kyrie doesn't. And we all know the skill set that James Harden possesses. And then it's obviously just 
look at Durant compared to Peyton Pritchard. Like you're not going to put him out there with yeah, Durant no out way. there. <laughs> so I think, yeah, to answer your question, I think it is kind of a matchups thing. If, if Steve Nash is going to play his three stars, the majority of the game, or, you know, keep one or two of them out there and have one or two of them sit for a couple minutes, then I feel like it's going to be tough for Pritchard to find minutes in this series. Cause Nash didn't really go to his bench all that much. He pretty much kept a, a star out there with, you know, a handful of bench guys or, you know, there was times where Blake Griffin was still out there with a starter or uh, Joe Harris was out there with a, with one of the two starters. So yeah, just matchup wise, I think it's going to be tough for Pritchard to find minutes. You're going to want to go with these bigger, more athletic type of guys like Jabari Parker, like Aaron Neesmith. I don't want to see him out there, but I'm curious to see if a guy like Romeo Langford or semi gets more minutes in games two in game two, neither one of those guys played in game one but maybe Brad Stevens thinks a guy like Langford, who's kind of got some size to him and some speed or Ojale, of course, we've seen him in the past take on guys like Giannis and Durant when the Celtics matched up against teams that Durant was on in the past. So maybe those guys get more minutes in game two, but I don't, I can't imagine they're going to bring much on the offensive side of the ball. They're going to be guys that go out there just to strictly play defense against, like I said, a Durant or maybe a Harden or somebody, but I don't know. Yeah, I'm with you. I'd like to see more from Pritchard because we've seen in the past that he's kind of been the go-to guy off the bench at times. And just matchup-wise, it might kind of screw him out of any chance of really putting up meaningful minutes or doing really anything meaningful in this series. That's not not a knock against Pritchard at all. But it's just, yeah, just the matchup is is tough. It's just so funny. Like, I forget I was talking to this – talking to this – talking with about this. Oh, this, yeah. There we go. Uh, talking with about this a couple of days ago, but it's just it's just funny to me how I know he's not the same player as he used to be. How like Blake Griffin's name just like falls into obscurity because yeah, <laughs> you have Durant, Katie, and Harden, so you just kind of forget that Blake Griffin like exists on this team sometimes. And Joe yeah. Harris is pretty good too. I mean, Joe Harris is nasty. Like, yeah, he's like, one of the best three point shooters in the league, and you just kind of he's the yeah, fourth, he's just, fifth yeah, best whatever. player. On that team. He's just Joe I mean, Harris. Like, think about it too. This is a team that after the trade deadline had Lamarcus had Lamarcus Aldridge on it for a day or two before he ended up retiring because of health problems. But just think if they had him in this series, you're going up against a starting lineup that consists of Durant, Kyrie, Harden, probably Joe Harris and Aldridge. And then you have Blake Griffin coming off the bench. Like it's just insane. It's just a, yeah, it's just a good luck. It's all around just kind of good luck. Hopefully you can put it like I talked to you about. I mean, hopefully the Celtics, I don't know if people listening remember that Cavalier series a couple years ago where the Celtics were severely, like outmanned outguns and they had that game where um, Avery Bradley hit the buzzer beater against the Cavs. That's what you're hoping for in this type of series. You hope they can steal a game late and maybe that builds some momentum, like I said earlier, but just keep going back to it. You're fighting a three headed monster that you're just not going to be able to overcome without one of your best players out there. If you had Jalen Brown, this would be a totally different series. In my opinion, I still think Brooklyn takes it, but you're looking at six, maybe a seven game series if you're lucky, but the way the season's turned out, you know, just the inconsistencies, the, the chips are just stacked too much up against the Celtics. The way things have gone with how inconsistent they've been, the injuries that they've had to try to overcome and now are not going to be able to without Brown. Um, and then, like I said, just going up against, you know, a team that is sitting there going, we'll let you win the first quarter. Hell, we'll let you play well in the second quarter. You're not going to beat us in the second half. One of our three guys, if not two of them, if not all of them, are going to take these games over and it's just not going to be anything you can do about it, which sucks. Cause like the biggest thing for me, obviously going back to, to tie it into, you know, I talked about the Red Sox early on in the year, just give me a competitive season 
when we didn't think the Red Sox were going to be all that great, and now they've completely flipped that switch on its head. That's kind of what I'm rooting for for the Celtics series is just give me a competitive series. Keep it close. Don't get blown out in any of these games. Don't fall apart late like they kind of did in this one. But like I said, that's just a, a, a testament to Brooklyn's top three guys saying, we don't want to do this anymore. This We're going to end this game right now. And there's, like I said, nothing you can do about it because there isn't, which sucks. And man, I, I just miss the days of the Celtics where you could watch Marcus Smart just own James Harden mentally and yeah. take offensive fouls. I That still remains, outside of watching them win the NBA championship, obviously, in 2008, it's my favorite Celtics memory of all time. Like that... James Harden just completely losing that it. That mental game, warfare. Yeah. That mental warfare by Marcus Smart just totally, totally blew me away i was like standing jumping in front of my tv i remember it like jumping up and down like freaking out i was like i've just i maybe it's because i don't watch the nba very much outside of the celtics i had never seen anything like that in a basketball oh, yeah i think even the I announcers said something along the lines of that where it's like you never see a guy of harden's caliber just completely lose it completely on back-to-back plays yeah oh it was awesome it was so awesome. Oh my god, I'll never forget that night just freaking out and Marcus Smart just completely making James Harden just crumble. Mm-hmm. Just crumble. We talked I mean we were talking about it back on Sports Spot and I was still freaking out about yeah. it at one point. Um oh my god, man. I miss those days. It's just, it's just, it's just disheartening to watch how this is all going down. Um you'd love to at least see the Celtics put up a better fight if uh Brown was healthy cuz I think they could. Um mm-hmm. Yeah, they wouldn't win this series. I, I don't mean to be too negative. They wouldn't win the series even with Jalen Brown, but you know, definitely be a bit more competitive. And for me, being a huge Jalen Brown fan, obviously, that's taking the wind out of my sails. If you can already tell that he is not available right mm. now, so yeah, it's just it's a tough, tough uh, chunk of the series for morale for me for the Celtics. Mm-hmm. My Love guy that. out of the lineup. But, yeah, I mean, we will have game two uh, tomorrow night. Hopefully they can even things up before heading back to Boston. Like, uh, if you could tell by the way we're talking about it, morale's not too high on that yeah. possibility, but we'll have to wait and see. Uh, there are some positive things going on with the Patriots as we transition into them. Um, they have made some news of late. One kind of interesting free agent signing that uh, I wanted to kind of quick, quickly get your thoughts on, and then we'll discuss kind of the big overarching uh, trade that could potentially maybe be coming if the Patriots are lucky enough to be part of it. Um, there's a lot of rumors starting to come out about uh, Julio Jones in Atlanta, as there always seems to be. You said this either last week or two weeks ago, uh, where it seems like every offseason Julio Jones is the talk of the town when it comes Even to before the trade, trade rumors. Sometimes I feel like he yeah, just like, I feel pops like as up. soon as the season ends, he always seems to have his name come up, but this offseason seems to be more concrete than any others, but we'll start with kind of the Patriots free agency moves. They've made a couple more in the free agency frenzy that has been this offseason, some minor moves. Uh, the Patriots threw out last week, signed offensive lineman Alex Redmond from Cincinnati, a long snapper by the name of Wes Farnsworth, who I've never heard of, uh, a safety Adrian Colbert from the Giants, running back Tyler Gaffney, who apparently they had. I don't remember that name ever coming up for the Patriots. Um, and then they re-signed offensive lineman James Ferentz and quarterback Brian Hoyer. That's the big name that I want to get your thoughts on, of course. And then uh, to go against the signings and re-signings, they also released offensive lineman Najee Turan, who was one of the uh, COVID opt-outs from a season ago. And I didn't know if this kind of – I'll bring this point up really quick because I want to get your thoughts on it. I thought it would be an interesting thing to maybe quickly discuss. Uh, 
Torian joins Marcus Cannon, Patrick Chung, Marquise Lee, uh, who are all not going to be on the Patriots this season after opting out of last season. And then we still kind of don't know about the uh, statuses of Dante Hightower. You expect him to be back, of course. Uh, but Brandon Bolden, Dan Vitale, who, of course, this is the Dan Vitale episode. Uh, and then Matt, Matt Lacoste. You can make the case, don't really have roster spots moving into this season. Uh, obviously, with the Patriots rehauling the tight end position, uh, they still have Jakob Johnson, who they re-signed at fullback. So that kind of puts some doubt on Dan Vitale coming back. And then Brandon Bolden, of course, joins or is trying to join a pretty stacked running back backfield, of course, that just added Tyler Gaffney. So that makes his roster spot a little bit more difficult. And then, of course, the Patriots have made some moves at linebacker. But you expect Dante Hightower to be there. So that's what I wanted to get your thoughts on is, Interesting that kind of the Patriots opt-outs have not, don't really have a spot on this team. Of course, Cannon traded to Houston, Patrick Chung retired, Marquise Lee was signed by San Francisco, Patriots didn't really have any interest in bringing him back, it seemed like, and then uh, Turan was just released as well. So any, maybe some, some thought to that, that the Patriots, these opt-out guys didn't, aren't coming back this year, or just kind of a coincident, coincidental type of thing. I feel like it's largely a coincidence. I thought I mm-hmm. saw something that, like, I thought I saw something that Matt Lacoste signed somewhere or okay. retired. That wouldn't, yeah, I don't think I don't think he signed somewhere, but I thought I saw something like that he like retired or something. But apparently okay. not. So anything add that mind. name to the list potentially. So Although. no idea about Matt Lacoste. No real idea about Dan Vitale. Um, Brandon Bolden, if he's brought back, it'll just be as like a special, special teamer. Team. Yep. Yeah. I really don't see a situation where Hightower doesn't come back. Yeah. I mean, there's been some speculation about Hightower retiring, but I really don't see Hightower wanting to go out like that. Mm-hmm. Um, after a COVID opt out, I feel like he's got more to prove and, you know, he's just still a damn effective player. Um, yeah. It's just kind of a coincidence largely, but uh, back to the point about uh, the players they've signed lately, West Farnsworth, the first thing I thought about was, was Kyle Farnsworth for some reason, old MLB yeah. pitcher. I wonder yep. if they're related. Uh, Alex Redmond, I really don't know a lot about, but he's offensive line depth. Love offensive line depth. I'll take it. Tyler yep. Gaffney was weird because I was sitting at the dinner table with my parents when this came out. I was like, oh, my God, Tyler Gaffney. Like he, They brought him in for like the preseason in 2014, and um, he played professional baseball recently. He was in the Pirates organization, mm-hmm. um, and he's played for like – San Fran and um, New York um, being the Giants of New York, not the Jets. Um, I don't know why I said it like that. But, yeah, he's just a guy that hasn't really stuck around. Maybe they're just, you know, seeing if they can turn him into, like, a decent special team or a guy that can return kicks. I'm pretty sure that's what his, like, specialty was as a running mm-hmm. back was, you know, he's a guy that got some looks in the return game. Maybe they just want to miss some competition for Gunner or something. I don't know. Um, Trey Nixon. Uh, James Ferentz has been around for a while. I mean, it's more offensive line depth. I'll take it. Kind of they're familiar with. Brian Hoyer, though. Um, it, this just has to come down to, like, the, oh, leadership thing. Oh, mentor. But, like, that's, yeah. It's just, it has to be familiarity at this point. I mean, mm-hmm. I hope we don't get to a point where we have to see Brian Hoyer suit up again. No. Like we did last year because that was a disaster. Um, but, yeah, it's just. I don't think he's like real competition, but just like mm-hmm. a depth guy, like a mentor. But I'll be honest, I didn't expect to see him back. Or you know, probably no, because should have. But like, I mean, I don't know. They don't really need him, but I mean, I guess they could use him. 
No, because every report I saw was that the Jets were interested in bringing him in, and I want to say Green Bay might have been the other team I saw. It might have been Houston, but like a lot of there were other reports out there that the Jets were going to bring him in for like a workout and an interview to see if he would be the obviously the backup to Zach Wilson, which would have made a lot of sense there because they lost Joe Flacco to the Eagles, I believe he ended up signing with. Um, but then, yeah, this dropped literally out of nowhere that the Patriots were bringing Brian Hoyer back. I think it was, wasn't it during game two of the, the Bruins or was either during the Bruins game or during one of the Celtics playoff games that they were just like, oh, hey, by the way, the Patriots re-signed Brian Hoyer, which makes some sense in a sense of, like you said, a leadership. And I have a question that I'll get your thoughts on at the end of this. But yeah, I mean, it's very confusing because especially the way that Brian Hoyer's season ended last year, of course, he starts the year off as Cam's backup from weeks one to three, has to play in the Kansas City game uh, when Cam gets COVID. But then after that debacle that was the week four matchup against Kansas City, Hoyer was inactive the rest of the season. You didn't see him. They gave way to Stidham, of course, came in a couple times in relief for Cam Newton. But you kind of thought Hoyer was dead and buried on the Patriots with all the inactive uh, weeks that he had. But then just, yeah, kind of weird to bring him back. My, my question I'm curious is, of course, the Patriots have run with three quarterbacks in the past. I wonder if they kind of keep him on the roster to be the football kind of mentor for Mac Jones, while Cam Newton is more so the like worth eth- work ethic type of guy, because that's not a knock on Cam Newton. Obviously, we've crapped a lot on him about his football uh, ability. But you bring in a guy like Mac Jones – whose skill set is more of a pocket passer and stuff like that. He's not a guy that's going to scramble around a lot like Cam Newton uh, has known for. You could make the case Jones is more of, you know, the type of quarterback that Hoyer is, the pocket passer type of guy. So that's kind of my thought. And my question is, is like, do you bring Brian Hoyer back in to be more of the mentor that fits the play style of Mac Jones more so than Cam Newton from a football standpoint? It could be more simply just, you know, Brand a guy that Just knows to have. Yeah. knows the environment, so mm-hmm. he can like you know be a guy like Mac Jones got questions along the way, or just can give Mac Jones advice about you know being comfortable as a Patriots quarterback. Mm-hmm. Um, just kind of a guy that, like you know he's been around the block, so can help Mac Jones. But yeah, I didn't expect to see Hoyer back, but seeing it now, I'm not really like tremendously surprised. But I don't know, I am a, I am a little bit surprised. Mm-hmm. but yeah he's just he's not a guy that's gonna threaten anybody's playing no. time so i mean it's okay well he'll threaten one guy's roster spot because that's kind of the last point we'll bring up about this yeah. is there's there's zero chance now i feel like that jared stidham makes this team out of training no, camp. i disagree i disagree. really i don't see them keeping hoyer around okay i think it's just gonna be like a like a temporary thing like just to get him up to – get in by him, I mean Mac Jones up to speed with everything, and then once the preseason ends, you just kind of cut Hoyer loose? Yeah, like I, I really don't see Hoyer being around by the start of the season. Maybe I'm in the minority in that side of things, but – Okay, it's an interesting way to I look really at it. I don't really see the, the gain in cutting Stidham for Hoyer. I'm sure I just Hoyer don't can see sit the... around and help Jones, but like Stidham's got a bit of experience now too. He doesn't so... have as much experience as Hoyer, but I think – cutting Brian Hoyer loose makes a lot more sense than cutting Jared Stidham loose. Okay. I just don't see the now, especially like I said, with Mac Jones here, the need for Jared Stidham. Like you're now you have a young quarterback that looks like is going to be your future. Like Stidham. I don't know if you'd be able to move him in any sort of deal. I have kind of one thought that I'll talk about when we get to the Julio Jones stuff. Um, why maybe he makes sense for them. Uh, 
but I just don't see that the need for it. They're definitely not going to carry four quarterbacks. That would just be idiotic no. from a roster standpoint. So I think Hoyer brings, obviously we keep talking about the leadership quality that maybe you keep him on the roster throughout the season, just to kind of be a teacher and a mentor to Mac Jones rather than Jared Stidham, who yes, has gotten some game experience, but has not really had any success at an, at the NFL level. So like I said, he's kind of just buried. I feel like on the, on the, the depth chart. Cause even going into the season, like if you carry Hoyer Newton and Mac Jones, I feel like the backup to Newton is going to be Mac Jones. I don't think you're going to put Brian Hoyer on the depth chart over him. Like that just wouldn't make sense in my opinion. So like I said, I just feel like Stidham is just completely buried now on this roster at this point, whether Hoyer's a guy you see here, not for the long term, but just like for the season or not. So it's definitely a more interesting quarterback room than it was already to begin with, with Mm -hmm. Newton and Jones and Stidham being here. Now you add Brian Hoyer into the mix, who's not going to obviously start or have any really chance at that, but we'll have to wait and see what uh, the Patriots, why they thought bringing Brian Hoyer back would be a a viable decision for them. Yeah. It's that guy that's been there, I guess, man. Yeah. Yeah. It's a head scratcher though. That's for sure. I mean, when I saw it, like I said, I was like, that's a very interesting decision, especially with how things went out this season, but we'll have to wait and see. Of course, the bigger news is the Julio Jones stuff that has once again come up, trade rumors. Uh, There's a little bit more that broke today, actually right before we started recording that uh, we can discuss, but we'll get to the kind of quotes and comments that we had before. Uh, Michael Giardi and Michael Hawley both had some interesting Patriots specific uh, discussions about Julio Jones. But like we said, once again, Julio Jones name has come up. The Falcons, this point looks like they're going to trade him. There's the reports out there today that they're asking teams for a first round pick. And if teams aren't biting on that, then they would be willing to take at least a second round pick to start discussions. So we'll have to wait and see if anybody jumps on that. But the two comments that kind of stick out for Patriots fans, Michael Giardi, of course, uh, I mentioned, he said that I can't speak to what Julio Jones wants, but I was told the Patriots have had internal discussions about the wide receiver. The 32 year old had been incredibly durable until this past season when he dealt with a troublesome hamstring. The seriousness of those discussions weren't made known to me. So I shall not speculate. And then Holly had his own kind of comments saying uh, on Boston sports tonight, the other night saying that this is going to surprise you and it's going to disappoint you. It's bittersweet because I love Julio Jones always have. You're not going to believe this. Do you know who he really wants to play with? You won't believe this. I'm telling you, I heard today. And I said, are you kidding me? He wants to play with Cam Newton. So I thought I found that kind of interesting because we talked about it when the Patriots re-signed Newton. I brought up the question is, are the Patriots doing this just to maybe get guys to sign with the Patriots? And obviously you saw a lot of uh, offensive weapons come over in free agency. Now this, another name, being linked to potentially wanting to play with Cam Newton. I don't know if I would want to go from Matt Ryan, say what you will about him to, to Cam Newton. I don't know if that would be the best kind of upgraded talents, I guess you could say, because I feel like that's a massive downgrade going from Matt Ryan to Cam Newton. But hey, if Julio Jones wants to come here to play with Cam Newton, the Patriots should not be hesitating at all to make something like this happen. I mean, yeah, <laughs> that, that's just, it right there. It's that simple, yeah. But – the thing is that DeAndre Hopkins might have other plans. In I did Arizona. see this. Yeah, he is vouching hard for Julio Jones. He said he would restructure his contract to accommodate Julio Jones. And most recently, forty-two minutes ago, he posted an Instagram photo of him, Julio Jones, AJ Green, and Michael Irvin all together. Oh, so yeah, he really, yeah, really pushing, really, for really wants Julio that Jones. Would, that would be something if they get. DeAndre Hopkins and Julio Jones in back-to-back off seasons. Yeah, and AJ Green like not and as yeah this one yeah not as 
big of a name at this point in his career, but I mean, still a name that holds some magnitude. Set a fairly successful career overall. It's mm. funny just looking at it now. <laughs> Devonte Adams is one of the top comments. Said, "Yeah, chill, lol." <laughs> 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 that's just like poor Devonte adams dude he's did i did i say deandre hopkins when i mentioned that comment or did i say Devontae no i adams? think you said, you said Devontae adams oh i thought i said deandre hopkins like commenting on his own post i thought i goofed but i didn't apparently Devonte adams man like he <laughs> he used to hate this he just like he's just a guy that you know hasn't had enough around him no, he's with Aaron Rodgers, quarterback then this offseason too. He like. sees, then he sees, you know, the idea of you know Aaron Rodgers potentially not being a Green Bay Packer next season. Then another top receiver in the league potentially getting a running mate like Julio Jones to run with. He's like, what the hell, man? Yeah. Like, what, what am I gonna do here? Poor guy, man. He's incredible. He deserves more, even though he's on the mm-hmm. Packers. And I don't really root for the Packers, believe it or not. But I mean, Devontae Adams is one of the best receivers I've ever seen in my life. So. Uh, yeah, mm-hmm. but you have to jump on this opportunity if you know this is if this is going to progress into more of a real, real possibility over time. You have to, you have to go after Julio Jones. I don't care if he's 32, I don't care if he's had any hamstring problems. Obviously, it's a little bit troublesome to have the hamstring, uh, being somewhat of an issue. But Julio Jones is just he's a physical specimen, pretty damn dominant receiver. Um, I don't know if this would translate to more love in the red zone because I think part of the thing Matt Ryan has struggled with has been finding Julio Jones in the red zone. I'm not sure Cam Newton would be much better at that because I don't think Cam Newton is a very good passer as we've alluded mm-hmm. to in the past. Yep. Um, but if Julio wants to play for Cam, you have to, you have to, Absolutely. you have to at least like go all out. Like if it doesn't work, I mean, that sucks. Uh, but at least, you know, you're making the effort. You got to go for Julio Jones. If you can make this work with the cap, um, now obviously get him here. You got to. You got to. I think it would be an epic way for Belichick to build on what's been an epic offseason for him as well. You know, you do all this. You have a pretty solid draft on the uh, on the surface so far. Um, and then you add freaking Julio Jones. That would just be the icing on the cake. Uh, mm-hmm. Currently, right now, um, according to Miguel Benzon on Twitter at Pat's Cap, um, according to his Twitter, he has the Patriots with fifteen million seventy-eight thousand three hundred sixteen dollars in cap space. So they'd have to get creative a little bit to fit Julio in. Uh, Julio, according to Spotrac.com, um, his base salary is fifteen point three million um, with a twenty-three million fifty thousand dollar cap hit. Mm-hmm. So they have to do a little bit of finagling with the cap. Uh, move some salary out, maybe make some cuts or a That's cut a or Patriots two. specialty, though. Yeah, I mean, you know, they're not just going to do it just to do it. If they're going to make this trade, they're going to have um, accommodations in mind to mm. make it fit under the cap. So, but yeah, man, if, if he wants to play with Cam Newton for any stretch of the imagination, you know, whether it's, you know, he's chopping at the bit or he just, you know, would love the opportunity. He likes Cam. He's a good guy. You have to, you have to explore it. You mm-hmm. just have to. I mean, you want to get yourself back into legitimacy, adding Julio Jones. This is how you do it to a very much improved on the surface already group of receivers. Um, I mean, the idea of this is just pretty bonkers that they could pull it off. Just absolutely do it. All right. So with the trade, obviously rumors 
all coming out, we would like to kind of throw our hypothetical trades out there, and I'll ask you what yours would be in a second, because I've seen some hypothetical trades put out there, one that was not Patriots-related, but I found kind of funny just how uh, simple it should be for the Patriots to make a move like this. And then I saw Jeff Howes reported uh, potential Julio Jones trade yesterday, and that made me laugh even more. But I'll get kind of the first one I saw. This was from Pro Football Focus. I'm assuming, just for like shits and giggles, they put this out there for Julio Jones to be traded to the Kansas City Chiefs because that's never going to happen. Uh, the Chiefs don't need Julio Jones, and I don't know why they would make a trade for him in the first place. I mean, to better your team, you would, but they probably aren't going to do this. Uh, Pro Football Focus's trade was that the Chiefs would get Julio Jones in a 2022 uh, sixth-round draft pick, while the Falcons get a 2022 second, third, and sixth-round pick as well. So if that's all Pro Football Focus thinks it's going to take to get Julio Jones, and the Patriots should jump on that, I feel like. I feel like you can agree with me there because that doesn't seem to be a ton to give up for Jones, in my opinion, at least. And then the Jeff Howe, apparently his potential Julio, tra- Julio Jones trade from a couple of days ago was that the Patriots would get Julio Jones, of course, and then the Falcons would get a conditional third-round pick and Nikhil Harry, which to me, that screams more of a no-brainer than the – joke on Falcons trade that I just put out there. Like if all you're giving up is to kill Harry and a conditional third round pick that would move up to maybe like a second, if the Patriots make the playoffs or whatever, the, whatever the condition would be again, it's a no brainer to trade for Julio Jones in the first place. If that's the trade offer you're, you're giving up, then that's just Bill Belichick with an absolute steal. I feel like. Yeah. I, I mean, that's just such an easy deal. If that mm. were to come on the table, like, be honest here <laughs> i mean yeah. Nikhil harry even if he was playing better i mean you could still justify that trade pretty easily mm-hmm. it gives them you know if that were to happen a not exact replacement in terms of skill but another guy that can insert into the receiver room mm-hmm. and hope to obviously get something out of but i mean if atlanta accepted that trade i think their gm would have to be fired absolutely like, you need more draft picks you need another player like there's just Something. no way, dude. There is no way it get done. It, it would get done that cheap. That would be absolutely mm-hmm. preposterous. Um, yeah, if if I'm if I'm predicting like a Julio Jones trade, I still have a feeling that it will take a first round pick. Okay. Or it should at least because mm-hmm. I mean it's Julio Jones, thirty two, and he's coming off an injury. But I mean, the guy when he's on is freaking phenomenal. Um, but if, you know, if, if a team were to give up a first round pick, it would be a team, you know, planning on contending, not obviously ideally giving up a potential top 10 pick if you're a bad team trying to trade for him. But yeah, if you're trading a first round pick, I imagine it'd be like a 2022 first and then like a late pick or two, not Mm -hmm. like a, a second, a third and a sixth, which is like, I feel like a pretty accurate forecast of what the Patriots would have to give up. Okay. Something like that if it doesn't require a first, but like I'm really fighting for the first, if I am a, Oh, you have to, if you're Atlanta, if I'm Atlanta, like I'm really fighting for the first, especially uh, because it gives you an asset. If you do need to go for a QB in next year's draft, it gives you an asset. If you want to trade up or another asset to potentially get one mm-hmm. next year's draft, you're looking that far ahead of the future um, if you're the Falcons. But yeah, I feel like, I feel like a trade, like a second, a third and a six is, fairly realistic for what um, the Falcons will get for Julio Jones. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe like a two seconds type of thing. They give up, they get like a 2022 and 2023 second from a team. Yeah. 
and then like a fifth this year, like a t- two twenty twenty two picks, and then the twenty twenty two third maybe. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I feel like it's like wow. If they don't, if they don't get a first, they really can't botch this because you know it's a big time player. They're no, that's why when we just when I talked about it earlier in the report, I can't remember where the tweet was that I saw it from, but they the report was out there that they were asking for a first round pick, and if teams weren't going to bite on that, then they would take a second. I feel like that's not something you kind of say in the same phone call, like hey, we want a first for him, but we'll take a second if you don't want to give us up a first. Like that's something if you're not getting the first a week or two into these trade reports, then you come back and say yeah, we'll take a second and more. So. I mentioned Jared Stidham early on, and people are going to think I'm insane for maybe proposing this trade. Uh, but there were some people that thought Atlanta should have gone after a quarterback in this year's draft. Of course, they did not to find the successor to Matt Ryan. So why not, if you're the Patriots, especially with now Hoyer coming in here, and like I just said, I don't think you have a spot for Jared Stidham on the roster. You are different for me for that. And I both we both bring up good points of why these guys should and shouldn't be here. Um Maybe you can entice Atlanta say, hey, this is a guy, you know, we thought highly of a couple of years back when we drafted him. We don't really have a spot for him now that we have Mac Jones and uh, we brought in Brian Hoyer, of course. So what do you say to a second round pick, maybe a third or a fourth, depending on how high Atlanta thinks of Jared Stidham. And then you throw Stidham's name in, name in there to say, here's your potential successor to Matt Ryan in case next year you don't want to go after a quarterback or you don't, don't think there's a quarterback in this year's upcoming draft that you'd like. We'll give you this guy. He's a guy, like I said, we thought highly of enough to draft and thought was going to be our successor. Maybe you guys can work him out and kind of get something and get him as uh, the next guy after Matt Ryan. Maybe you throw a kill here into that too, just to say we'll give you two young guys that haven't really worked out here for us. Yeah, we'll, like we'll give you a second seconds, too. Yeah, exactly. We'll give you a second. Stidham and Harry. Yeah. I mean, it's possible. That. It's mm-hmm. more so like – Stidham and Harry at that point are more so just like throw-ins to kill. Like it gives to them, this, yeah, mm-hmm. it gives them a receiver to slot in. Mm-hmm. You know, like I said earlier, not skill-wise, but you know, at the position, I uh, like maybe get something out of Harry there. Yeah, but yeah, I mean, I don't think they would like turn down Stidham if the mm-hmm. Patriots offered him. I mean, it would help. Yeah, I mean, I think I mean just give you a little reassurance if you're Atlanta. True. Clear things up a little bit if you're the Patriots. Yeah, I mean, it's funny too that you throw you put out there, you know, the Stidham and Harry could be kind of a throwing because the other report too that I saw really early on when they were discuss when these rumors were first coming out is I think Atlanta was more so prioritizing draft picks that they wanted for Jones than anything else. So yeah, makes yeah, sense. I mean that would yeah make sense obviously from their standpoint, kind of in the midst of a mini rebuild it looks like or maybe a rebuild on the fly type of thing but I don't know like I said some people might think I'm crazy for saying that Jared Stidham could be a valuable asset in in a Julio Jones trade but when you break it down there's there's a need there at quarterback potentially if Atlanta wants to go in that route and wants to go in that direction and maybe you could like I said make a deal that works out for both parties but I mean there's stuff that's come out today I'm sure people if they're on Twitter you saw the kind of the phone call he had with uh, Shannon Sharp today on Undisputed and saying that he wants out of Atlanta. Have we have we decided if he knew he was on air for that yet, or do we still think he thought he was maybe just taking a regular phone call with Shannon? Or what were kind of your thoughts on that as we kind of wrap up Patriots talk here before we jump into the one little Red Sox thing I wanted to quickly discuss? I'm kind of like leaning more towards like he just didn't care. Okay. He's just like, completely done with Atlanta, just wants nothing to do with them, and I'm going to express my – 
concerns on national on live television. Yeah, he just I just feel like he doesn't care. I mean, yeah. I don't know. Like, how do you not know that Shannon Sharp is on air? That's what I want to know. Yeah, I mean, like, it's not like the not like us where may, some days they have the show on one day, other days that they're on another. Like, it's undisputed's uh, set in stone from this time to this time, type of thing. Like, it's how it works. Yeah, and bare minimum, if you're Jones, you know that like he's on undisputed yeah he, like, yeah he has the show yeah he's yeah, on like it, he so. has the show so i don't know maybe he's like screw it man whatever i'm just gonna drop the ball right on mm-hmm. the show maybe it was pre-planned who knows maybe it's like maybe, yeah, yeah it's a yeah i didn't even hey, think hey, he's that. like hey julio like i'll just I'm gonna, call you like, i'm gonna call you at this time yeah 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 so there was that and then obviously of course people i'm sure saw the picture on twitter too of julio jones and the dallas cowboys i believe it was sweatshirt might have been a t-shirt it doesn't matter it had the dallas cowboys logo and name on it but he also kind of put that to bed that he wanted to go to dallas as well because shannon asked him that and he said he wanted to go somewhere where you know he's gonna win so uh a pretty big dig in my opinion at dallas for the kind of poverty franchise in my opinion that that franchise is um it would be wild if they, you know, could acquire Julio Jones and then have C.D. Lamb, Michael Gallup, and um, Amari Cooper. I would have to imagine all three of those guys wouldn't be there along with Julio Jones. I had this discussion with a buddy of mine at work, and I feel like Michael Gallup might have to be part of that trade because that would just be wild to run those four receivers out there. But, yeah, so it doesn't look like Julio Jones is going to Dallas, which would be nice because that would kind of suck if you got to – watch Julio Jones in a Dallas Cowboys uniform, but we'll have to wait and see what kind of, what comes out of that. Yeah. Just make it happen. If you're the Patriots, like, yeah, you just got to make it happen. I just like, that would just be weird if you end up in Dallas. (laughs) Yeah. That'd just be weird. That would just make Cowboys fans more annoying. Yeah, exactly. You said that off. We were discussing that before we, of course, jumped on to record. Um, One kind of thing I thought of was last thought here. I wonder if maybe, I don't think Delta Green Bay has the cap space for it, but maybe does Green Bay make kind of a late push, maybe a team to watch out for if they maybe try to entice uh, Aaron Rodgers, who I believe I thought I saw today missed his, uh, missed the OTAs, which he has not missed yet as a Green Bay Packer. So things are still don't seem to be too uh, too peachy out in Green Bay with Rodgers and the Packers. So maybe maybe getting Julio Jones could lighten the load a little bit and maybe sweeten the deal for Aaron Rodgers. That's a, that's a situation where the Falcons would like have to get a first round pick. Absolutely, board. yeah. You're not trading within the same conference. Yeah. yeah, the same conference. Yep. There's that would just be yeah. bonkers. They yeah. like didn't get enough by trading him to the Packers. Oh man, that'd be a nightmare mm-hmm. for Atlanta fans. Yeah. Yes, it would. But like I said, we'll have to wait and see. Still pretty early on, but this seems to be the first true off season where there seems to be some some steam behind all these kind of reports and these rumors that Julio. Jones wants out the Falcons want to move him. So we'll have to see how things go. Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. If he comes to New England. The, oh boy. Let's just say as if the Patriots offseason wasn't wild enough, taking the two top tight ends off the free agent market and reassuring the wide receiver position and pretty much hitting a home run in the draft. Now you're going to potentially bring in Julio Jones too, which is, yeah just wild to think about. So something that's been in the works, I wouldn't say in the works, but just kind of Patriots fans dreams the last, what, three or four off seasons. Yeah. I wonder like if Jones, if the like desire to play with Cam trumps the fact that, you know, the Patriots might not be the exact type of contender he wants Mm -hmm. to go to. That's That's a good point. 
I don't really think he'd mind. It seems like he likes he likes Cam a good amount. So I feel like even if the Patriots like aren't like Bucks or Chiefs levels, he could be like, all right, yeah, it's cool. Works yeah, for me. Yeah, go there. Yep. Maybe he's a huge Mason. fan of Belichick too. We don't know how he feels about Belichick, yeah. so maybe that will always, factor into it. Always that factor. Yep, that's for sure. But yep, like I said, we'll have to wait and see. Uh, as that's pretty much it for Patriots stuff to discuss because there's not Red a, Sox. Not a ton there. Not a ton with the Red Sox either. They, I saw they continue to play well, but something today that it means nothing because it just you know we don't know until draft night. But another mock draft with Jack Leiter going to the Red Sox at fourth overall. I need it. The MLB draft is – I I don't tend to turn, tune into the MLB draft a lot. I kind of just follow along on Twitter-wise just to see who teams take because um, obviously it's not as – I don't want to say glorified because that's the wrong word, but it's not as focused on like you have with the NBA draft and the NFL draft and, you know, the two bigger ones. Um, but this one I feel like is going to be one – that'll be interesting to tune into because I feel like the top four names and it's obviously lighter and rocker from Vanderbilt. And then there's two shortstops who I can never remember the name of um, that are projected to go within the top four as well. I feel like every mock draft I've seen, it's always a switch of those four names, depending on, you know, where whoever the hell's doing the mock draft thinks it's going to be the best fit. So I've seen the Red Sox ending up with lighter. I've seen them ended up with ending up with Kumar rocker at four. And then either one of those two shortstops that, like I said, I can't remember the name of. So I feel like every week it changes, which don't get me wrong. If they end up with Lighter at four, that's a steal in my opinion because I feel like he should be going one or two. I feel like both Vanderbilt pitchers should be the two consensus picks, uh, two top two consensus picks rather. So that's a very interesting that he could potentially fall to four for the Red Sox though. So Just definitely. for reference, oh wait, no. Just look at it now. You data subscription to see the full mock draft. but That's um, oh, always fun. Yeah, I mean, I imagine the top four before him is that Lawler kid, Kamar Rocker, and I forget the other kid's name that's at the top. Yeah, I was going to look that up too now, and I can't remember. <coughs> Jack Leiter, um as a Red Sox would just be preposterous. Absolutely. I mean, like I said, I would take either. Oh, here it is. Marcelo Mayer, shortstop out of Eastlake High School, is the consensus, is the top pick on this draft from May 19 on MLB.com. Lawler 2, Henry D. Oh, this is not the right thing. This is, yeah, this is not, I don't know what this is. This is not right because this does not have Rocker or Lighter going in the top. Oh, no, it is. This MLB draft from uh, May 19th has Lighter falling 5 to Baltimore and then Rocker falling 6 to the Diamondbacks. Oh, God, the, dude. If With if the Red Jack Sox Lighter. No, dude. With a shortstop going one to Pittsburgh in Mayer, a shortstop in Lawler going two to the Rangers, a catcher in Henry Davis going three to Detroit, and then the Red Sox take a shortstop by the name of Brady House from wherever Winderbarrow no. High School is. No. No. <laughs> yeah. No. Hell no. No. If Jack Leiter is there at four, you absolutely take him. Like, if either what? one of those guys is there at four, Rocker or Leiter, you have to – Red Sox don't need another shortstop. They have yeah, like what? Downs. They have uh, Cannon, who they took a couple of years ago, and I think it was the it's first time. Sander Bogarts. Like, Phil Bogarts for however longer he was going to play for the Red Sox, which you hope is his entire career. Like, Plus, worst comes to worst, you still have Arauz, who is showing that he can perform well at the major league level. I'm not saying he's the future of the shortstop for the Red Sox, but – 
Like you, you're, if you had to pick a position that the Red Sox are best off at, like you'd say shortstop is loaded. I mean, even hell, even Nick York that they drafted last year profiles as a second baseman slash shortstop. So there's another middle infielder you don't, you can put either place. Like, yeah, if they, if they yeah. pass on lighter or, or rocker, if they're both available at four, I'd, I would, uh, Oh, you you put your faith in Heim Bloom for this one because obviously being with the Rays, uh, he's got a pretty good track record when it comes to drafting superb talent. So yeah, you got to think if both those guys somehow are sitting at at four, that he doesn't pass on either one of them because obviously the Rays pitching has been mo for as long as we can remember. So they don't they don't tend to strike out on that position. No pun intended. So yeah, yeah, see what I did there. Yeah. But yeah, I mean that's obviously something to keep an eye on as the draft is uh, I believe what's that first week of June I should probably know that but it's uh, it's upcoming so definitely something to get people's hopes up for one thing to get your hopes up for that has uh, already occurred is the Danny Santana era has begun in Boston it's off to a pretty good start he's got two home runs in three games uh, hit a big home run in his major league not major league his Red Sox debut uh, so like I said not a ton to talk about with the Red Sox but just kind of good that Danny Santana is finally here and good that the move the corresponding move to bring Santana to the major league team was they finally DFA'd Austin Bryce who was uh, not good for the Red Sox this year a 694 ERA in 12 games not good in his two-year or year and a half stint with the Red Sox 33 games a 632 ERA so good to see Austin Bryce kind of finally gone off this team I doubt anybody is going to pick him up on waivers so he would probably end up in Worcester uh the other move today the Red Sox made too I just saw this before we jumped into Red Sox uh coverage they activated Christian Royal off of the injured list and Michael Chavis, who showed some signs of improvement. Uh, he is back to Worcester as well. So kind of stinks that Chavis is gone, um, especially, like I said, with Franchi Cordero still here, but we won't get into that. Cordero did finally hit a home run the other day. I saw a, a pig fly by my window as it happened. Uh, and then I, yeah, the news report came on that hell froze over as well yesterday in case people missed it. But yeah, I mean, that's something to talk about. Franchi Cordero finally hit a home run. Uh, maybe that kind of breaks him out of the season-long slump that he's been in, but we will have to wait and see. Back on Danny Santana, though, obviously I talked about it when the Red Sox signed him. If they can get him back to where he was in 2019 with the Rangers, where he hit uh, 28 home runs, drove in 81, and hit 283 while also stealing 21 bases, I said it that the Red Sox would have the best offseason signing or best free agent signing of the offseason because you got a guy that is putting up or can put up numbers like that for pretty much dirt cheap money. They signed him to a minor league deal and didn't have to give up anything to get him. Um, but he's been impressive so far. He's played first, he's played right, and he's played center, I believe, in his first three games for the Red Sox. Uh, like I said, has shown some power, has shown some speed. Uh, just kind of another guy that gives them a ton of different positions and availability at different positions, um, which to me – is kind of interesting too, because Marvin Gonzalez has struggled a lot this season. So I wonder if maybe Santana or maybe brother Gonzalez kind of is looking over his shoulder at Danny Santana, maybe coming for his job. If the Red Sox have to make another, you know, decision down the line of, you know, keeping some guys and moving some guys around. Cause Hey, Jaron Duran has had a pretty good year down in Worcester so far. We haven't even talked about him a lot this year, but he went five for five yesterday with two home runs. Uh, I think he's got four or five home runs now. So he's a guy that's kind of banging on the door at the major league level and could maybe be up here by the end of the month. Maybe it's like, it's like that point. Eric Andre gift when he's like, he's like at the gates at of, the white house or the yeah, gate of the, the white, white house. Like, yeah. Let me in. Let me in. Let me in. Yeah. 
Oh, Durant's yeah, that's a he had like a four hundred seventy five foot home run the other night. Yeah, he has not hit a cheap home run yet this year. Out of like I said, the four or five he's hit, they've all been absolute bombs. Same thing with Tristan Casas, who's in my opinion a couple years away, but he is hasn't hit any cheap ones either. So. Red Sox farm system is looking pretty strong or stronger than it has in the past, but yeah, Tasha's just like, is like playing for team USA in the upcoming, they have like, some I, upcoming yeah, I, did, I right? did see that he he's on the roster. Duran's on the roster. Yeah, and Durant then too. I don't know if Jeter downs is or not. I thought there was one more Red Sox prospect. Now it, I might be, yeah. I saw something that just cautious and Duran, maybe downs mm-hmm. is and just wasn't mentioned in the tweet I saw, but I don't know. I might be thinking something else, but yeah, I mean, like I said, just kind of, one of the shine some light on Danny Santana, kind of give again the background on him and just my thoughts. Uh, your thoughts so far? I know it's a short sample size. I don't know if you've watched any of the games of the recent nights. I know obviously kind of playoff hockey is where your mind is and probably where it should be. Um, but yeah, just your thoughts on Santana if you've seen anything from him so far. It's just one of those things, man, that those like low risk minor league deals that could potentially work out. It's looking pretty solid so far, short sample size. So uh, got that power. If he can channel that 28 home run season for him, it's looking pretty good. So I'll take that from Danny Santana. Um, yeah. I mean, I don't know how long this is going to last, but it works for me. Rafael Devers, speaking of, you know, good things with the Red Sox is still just crushing it. Uh, 13 home runs, 39 RBIs is way up there in both regards. Speaking of guys, lots of home runs. They'll be playing Ronald Acuna Jr. and the Atlanta Braves for a couple this week. That'll be uh, interesting to watch. Ronald Acuna Jr. is just a ridiculously fun baseball player. Um, he wanted to hit lefty, I saw the other night, but his manager would not allow him to because they were winning like 18 to freaking something or something. Yeah, you gotta absurd. watch the rules. The freaking Braves uh, yeah. are just fun for Ronald Acuna alone outside of being a pretty good team. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they're going to need more from Devers consistently and their top guys because the division is getting tight. The Rays have won their last 10 games. The mm-hmm. Yankees have won eight of their last 10. The Red Sox have won seven of the last 10. So, I mean, things are getting really tight. The early season slump for the Yankees is, you know. Looks to coming, be over on four. Becoming a distant memory. But mm-hmm. uh, top of the division is looking pretty interesting. The Rays and the Red Sox are neck and neck, and the Yankees aren't too far out. Even the Blue Jays, I wouldn't count them out yet, but they're a little further behind. Yeah, um, I mean, four and a half games out, but yeah, pretty things are shaping up pretty interesting and turning into the more competitive AL East that we anticipated. Uh, with, of course, the Orioles having a decent start to the season that faltered, faltered very uh, quickly expected. as it usually does, and yeah. the Yankees are flipping the script more and more with time, and um, it's going to come down to. A guy in Rafael Devers who looks like a 12-year-old that you're going to have to <laughs> rely on to keep your season afloat because that 12-year-old looking kid um, is carrying the load on offense right now. And Yeah, that's for sure. Him, it seems uh, like he's it's crushing it. Yeah, him, JD, or Xander, night in the night out, pick one of them to – Yeah, and Xander's just casually really well. hitting 345. That's what I mean. But... He's Yeah, the – Keep saying it, the best shortstop in baseball. I don't think at this point you can dispute that anymore with what the guys do. And I know people will jump on his defense, which I think is kind of a joke because he's not that bad. I know all the nerds in the metrics will say he's not a great – he's a a below-average defender. But, I mean, the guy is without question. Trevor Story is starting to get hot in Colorado, so he might make Mm -hmm. a case for that again. But right now, Xander Bogarts, and really since – the end of that Orioles series at the start of the season uh, has been and is the best shortstop in all of baseball. 
Yeah, which, like yeah, just you got him in, cheap. So just to put in perspective, too, he's in three forty-five, which is fourth best of the majors, up there with German Mercedes, who's just ahead of him. You know, guy's kind of crushing it. And that troublemaker, Chicago. German Mercedes. Troublemaker. Um, Jesse Winker is having a really solid season, and uh, Nick Castellanos or Cassianos, I always forget how to pronounce his last name, mm-hmm. in Cincinnati. So Bogarts is right up there with the top echelon of players in the LB right now, solidifying, solidifying himself as not only the best shortstop, arguably, in baseball, as one of the best players in baseball right now. Yeah. No he's doubt up about there. that. Um, I mean, he's hitting better than Mike Trout in terms of average. That's pretty wild to look at. Didn't think I'd be seeing that, but no. he's way up there, man. He's he's establishing himself as one of the best players in the league, and people uh, doing it quietly too. Fan bases and media and stuff need to put some more respect on a uh, Xander Bogarts' name. I think absolutely been saying that for three or four the last three or four years now. And the nice thing too, in no terms of to do it. you know guys, you younger guys you want to succeed is Bobby Dahlbeck has been turning things around over the yeah, past he's, three weeks yep. or so. He's had and, a good road trip so far. I mean, he struck out 49 times, which is a decent amount at this point in the season. But, I mean, he's he's getting more comfortable at the plate, I think, early on in the season. Mm-hmm. He just needs to be more disciplined and, you know, make decisions better at the plate. But I think he's gotten better a little bit over time. And it's nice to see Bobby turn the corner because, you know, it goes back to this tight division race now. You're going to need um, guys that have power potential like him and Devers and others to really step up in some of these games going forward. Yeah, Most, absolutely. if not all of them. Yeah, I mean, we talked about it a couple weeks ago when you had the Oakland series coming up and you said it was a measuring week for the, for the Red Sox. You can make the case for these next couple of weeks. I mean, two against Atlanta starting tomorrow. You get the Marlins who haven't gotten off to a great start this year, but they were a playoff team last year. You can't count them out. And then it's a road trip with the Astros and the Yankees for the first time. Which Again, weird to see the Yankees, uh, the first Yankees series coming up from June 4th to the 6th because you would have thought they would have obviously had the Yankees and Red Sox play earlier in the year. But it's the first look we get at the Yankees. Uh, maybe the Red Sox can regain some some space in the division. But like you said, they've been playing well, so it's not like they're you know hurting themselves when it comes to how close this division race has gotten. You mentioned it, that the Rays have won 10 in a row. The Yankees have won six in a row. So everybody in the division, maybe with the outside of uh, the Orioles, has played pretty good baseball so far this season. And it's going to be an interesting race as we kind of predicted, not with the Red Sox involved at the start of the year, but we thought, you know, the Yankees, the Rays, and the Blue Jays would all be there till the very end, yeah. and Boston has made it just that much more interesting with how well they've played this season. Yeah, you can't really count out the Blue Jays, man, with no, Guerrero, yeah. Guerrero really breaking onto the scene as we've kind of been waiting for for a little while, and adding George Springer, and just they had a really, really solid offseason as a whole. Um, you can't count out those Blue Jays yet, even though you just beat them uh, two out of three not mm-hmm. too long ago, but yeah, it's going to, if this keeps up, man, the, the AL East race is probably going to be the most exciting race in baseball. Oh, probably. I mean, you got to keep an eye on that NL West because that's pretty close too. But yeah, the American League East once again has four teams that are all right going to be right in the thick of things. It looks like right to the very end. So. Yep. Love it. Love it. Love competitive baseball. It's much more fun than what we saw last year. That's going to say. That's all I wanted this year. And they have exceeded expectations for the first month and a half. So keep it up and. We'll see if they can uh, just give us success. Jared Duran too. I mean, yeah, I would. would I don't would care if Franchi Cordero hit a home run. Yep, I don't either. I would rather watch Duran go up there, and it can't be much worse than what Cordero has been before yesterday. But like I said, we won't crap on him too much. He did hit a home run, so hopefully that can maybe break him out of the slump that he's been in. But yeah, it was again, funny because Chris Cotillo 
called a couple nights ago. Like, this is going to be the night that uh, Franchi Cordero hits his first home run or something along those lines. And then he didn't. So he's like, oh, I had JK, like I meant yeah. tomorrow. Um, something along the lines of that. And the know. next day. And the next day. And, the and next then, day. bam, he hits it. The next day. It's one for two. Shout out to Chris Cotillo, spoke it into existence. Um, but yeah, man, things are really looking pretty entertaining down the line for the Red Sox in that division. Mm-hmm. Yep. We'll have to wait and see, like I said, how things kind of pan out and hopefully they can continue their, uh, their winning ways. And hopefully the Bruins can too, when they, True. You know, whenever they end next. up playing next. Yeah. Cause we don't really, that's the one uncertainty we don't know about. Yep. But yeah, it's been an overall pretty positive show outside of the Celtics having a tough start. Shocker. Road ahead. But overall, pretty positive show. Good stuff for the Bruins. Good stuff, hopefully, for the Patriots. If they get Julio Jones, it'd be pretty mm-hmm. sweet. And the Red Sox, you know, keeping pace in that division. And, you know, 28-19, too shabby of a record. But that's going to wrap it up for episode 45. Speaking of the Red Sox, the Pedro Martinez episode, the most important name of the jersey. The one, the one good number, yep. One of the best pitchers, if not the best pitcher of all time. Um Yes, thank you for listening. A nice, good, fantastic episode on this sunny Monday afternoon. Um, Mike will play some street hockey, enjoy the fresh air, who knows. Uh, but, yep, thank you for listening. You can follow us on TikTok uh, at Sal Kratz Sports Podcast or throw Savage and Kratty into the search bar. Uh, got some new followers this week, so thank you for that. If any of those new followers are listening, um, we'll have some more content th- for you through the playoffs and maybe some Julio Jones Patriots content, who knows. And, um you can follow me on Twitter at Mike underscore Craddy. You can follow Ryan at Ryan underscore Salvaggio. And you can follow the show at Sal and Craddy Pod. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts. If you're not already listening on one of those, Anchor has plenty of other platforms for you if you choose uh, to use them. Uh, if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, please give us a rating, five stars. Leave, uh, leave a review if you'd like. We'll see if we can get some reviews there for, for the nice people who listen to our show. We certainly appreciate it. I think I can speak for us both. And, uh, yeah, we'll see you next week for the David Krejci episode. Maybe David Krejci, um, if the Bruins are underway by then, will have a big goal for us to talk about or something like that. Or maybe we'll just sing the praises for David Krejci. I think that's the bare minimum because Krejci forever. Um, I knew it was going to be Krejci that you mentioned, but uh, I don't know off the top of your head if you can think of the Celtic that I'm thinking of for 46. Oh, yes. Yeah, oh, yes. David Krejci takes priority, but Aaron Baines. Yeah. Aaron Baines, one of my all-time favorite Celtics. I love Aaron Baines. We'll have to sing the praises for him as well. But uh, we'll see you then. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Be nice to people. And uh, take care. Bye-bye.